This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This might very well be a new era in Washington, but is this a new era that looks a lot like every other supposed new era in the history of Washington? Well, um, Kevin McCarthy, in what was the longest speaker's election since 1859, is promising that they're going to do all sorts of interesting things. They're going to crack down on... Uh, the border. They're going to deal with crime. They're going to change the way Washington does business. And uh, they're going to end wasteful spending. We'll end wasteful Washington spending. From now on, if a federal bureaucrat wants to spend it, they will come before us to defend it. So it is interesting uh, that this is an incredibly narrow Republican majority. It's also interesting to see that one of the things that Republicans seem to be making such a priority is investigating some of the scandals or the pseudo scandals of the Biden administration. So where are we going for the next two years? What does government look like? What does politics look like? What does the Republican conference look like? Well, we have assembled uh, three former congressmen who've been there, who've seen the inside of the how the sausage-making process in D.C. is made. We've tried to represent all three aspects of the discussion and, and all three perspectives that are being heard in Washington these days. And I think we have... Two of the folks that uh, that uh, we were hoping to speak to with us now, and hopefully we'll uh, be joined by one in just a moment. Let me first welcome a former Democratic congressman from New York, the host of The Middle podcast and The Anthony Weiner Show on uh, WABC, my colleague, Congressman Anthony Weiner. Congressman, how are you? Thanks so much for staying up late with us. Uh, good morning, Frank. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let me also welcome former Republican congressman from Florida and an MSNBC contributor, somebody that I think uh, can be described generally as a, a Trump critic, uh, David Jolly. Congressman Jolly, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good to be with you, Frank. I was loving the Mariano Rivera vibe. <laughs> well, as a Met fan, it. I can't speak for Anthony, but as a Met <laughs> fan, uh, it's always Billy Wagner's theme song to me, not necessarily uh, Mariano Rivera. And uh, we're hoping to be joined uh, in a minute by uh, somebody on the rightward end of the political spectrum, former Congressman Tom Tancredo. We're going to try and get a hold of him in a second. But, uh, David, let me begin with you, uh, since you're, you're from Florida, a, a state which has also given us Matt Gates, who was sort of the ringleader of the anti-McCarthy rebels. 
Tell me, as someone that sat in the conference with many of the people on both sides of this issue, how do you see the next two years? Is there any way that this uh, intra-Republican party fight can be viewed as a positive, either for the party or for the country? Where do you see it going? One little glimmer, which I'll get to, but... Um, no, look, let's let's just lay bare here. Everything McCarthy said they're going to do, they're not going to do any of it because they only control the House and Democrats control the Senate and the White House. So what they are going to do on the legislative front is pass messaging bills to draw a contrast with Democrats going into 24. And, and that's good. That will inform voters, you know, are you with the Republicans or Democrats based on their stance on issues? Clearly, Republicans are taking a pretty hard conservative tact even in these first couple of days. So you'll see them on messaging bills. You will see them do investigations, and that's where they will primarily uh, spend a lot of their energy because they will see a return on their investment for spending their time on investigations. But the third thing they're going to have to do, and this is what ultimately will stress test the caucus, is they're going to have to keep the government open. Right? This is ultimately what's saying Boehner and Ryan is at some point Kevin McCarthy is going to have to work with Democrats. He's lying today if he says he's not going to have to, to keep the government open, both for their annual budget process, the appropriations process, as well as not defaulting on the debt, which is a separate matter. He's going to have to work with Democrats, and he's going to have to work with Democrats in the House. He's going to have to offer concessions or really get dragged along to to a solution by Chuck Schumer and by the Biden White House. And so the question is, can such a slim majority Republican caucus survive that stress test? I don't know that they can. I will tell you, the only way I think that they they do is for Kevin McCarthy to pull an Elise Stefanik and just go hard Freedom Caucus, probably in in the lane of the investigations that we discussed. And you kind of saw that this past week for him to gain the speakership. He had to sell every every last piece of furniture and, and credibility he had to the hard right to be able to get to the speaker's gavel. And that's the only way he's going to be able to keep it is to stay in that hard right lane. Uh, Anthony Weiner, if people haven't heard uh, your most recent edition of your podcast, it's actually a must listen because uh, the the in-depth analysis that you provided in terms of the rules was incredibly helpful and incredibly informative. And uh, when you and I were chatting privately during this whole uh, discussion about the speaker vote, your insight really helped me to be a lot better informed. Uh, it's not as if the Democrats don't have some fissures within their own party conference, but those fissures seem a lot less visible now that the Republicans are in the majority. How do you see the next two years in terms of intra-Republican uh, work goings on in D.C., the relationship between the uh, the House and President Biden and the relationship between the majority and the minority? Yeah, I, I think Congressman Jolly described it well, what's going to happen. And I think the best way for our listeners to understand it is there are really three parties, kind of similar to what it was over 100-something years ago when there was a, a fissure in Congress over the issue of slavery. Now, there are Democrats who have stuff, broadly speaking, they want to get done. There is a center of gravity in the Republican Party who want to legislate and get some things done. But then there's this third element that kind of really is not in Washington for the purpose of trying to accomplish stuff. They're more there for stuff that they're against, the general nihilism about kind of stopping the bad people in Washington from doing the work that they want to do, et cetera. The fact that there are three of these parts means that really there's there's probably not 
a governing coalition unless Speaker McCarthy and a substantial portion of the Republican Party, who you might describe as more moderate, although they're all pretty far to the right, says, you know what, we want to get certain things accomplished. Let's let's pick an issue. Let's say immigration. We want to compromise and not try to come up with real solutions. I think that's what's going to wind up happening is you're going to see, as was previously described by Congressman Jolly, you're going to see a lot of stuff that would not, I would say, in, be in the category of actually legislating, as in passing bills that are passed by the Senate and then signed by the president. I think you'll see a lot of this investigation stuff. And I think to get into punditry for a moment, those are the types of things that most kind of the middle of the road voters in America don't find very compelling. You know, if you take a look at the inflection point when things started to go a little better for Democrats, a little better for the president, it's when he started to rack up some wins during the summer. And, you know, just just yesterday, for the first time in forever, there was a, an approval poll taking of, of, of President Biden, where he was actually doing a little bit in the positive, a little bit more people approved than disapproved. I think it's because a lot of Americans watch what's going on in Congress and say, I don't want that kind of, you know, mud fighting. I would want to see stuff get done. So I think that, that Congressman Jolly's right. A lot of investigations, a lot of messaging bills. But if you think there are going to be a lot of signing ceremonies at the president's desk, I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, that's exactly my frustration. And I I consider myself one of these voters that's kind of in the middle. It drives me. I just sort of roll my eyes when uh, the Democrats are investigating Trump for the umpteenth time and the uh, Republicans want to uh, begin 9000 investigations of anybody with the last name Biden. And I do wonder um, why there isn't uh, more of a, a bipartisan consensus in in the House of folks that want to get something done, I would think there would be a uh, at least a plurality of Democrats and Republicans that are willing to work to deal with the must pass legislation, stuff like the debt ceiling and everything like that, uh, but actually work on moving the ball forward rather than investigating whatever the party that's out of power is. I mean, David, uh, why isn't there emerging a uh, like a bipartisan yeah. conference of people that are that are eager to, eager to get stuff done instead of penalizing their political adversaries because of gerrymandering closed primaries and campaign finance laws that benefit incumbency in the big parties that's it i mean this is you get to do an entire show on electoral reform that pivots the incentives we have done that by the way yeah Yeah. well and so you as you well know once you change the incentives for political behavior you'll get to see different behaviors but right now you know, 400 of the 435 members on on both sides of the aisle are insulated by safe districts, and they just they just have to win a closed primary, which means you you've got to be there for your base, and there is no value in compromise. In fact, you end up getting penalized for compromise, which is why I think you'll see people move to investigations. And and to your point on this, though, this is interesting because we did see some data in 18 and 20 and 22 to the Democrats' benefit, but it it wasn't necessarily because Democrats were leading investigations. It was a bit because of the, you know, the, the Trumpism had gone too far. And what you saw in 18 and 20 and 22 is this group of voters you described, Frank, that just wanted to see things get done and probably get done in a little bit of common sense and compromise way on guns and education and finances and budget and so forth. And what you saw Democrats inherit, because I don't think they reached out to create this coalition. They inherited a coalition of their natural Democratic performing voters 
independents who in 1820 and 22 began to perform more favorably towards Democrats as a rejection of Republicans, and then the disaffected Republicans, which was me. I was part of that coalition that Democrats led in 18 and 20 and 22 to benefit Democrats in Congress and throughout uh, electoral positions across the country. And, and to your point, Frank, I think it's an affirmation that there's a heartbeat of America that actually just wants things to get done on the issues most critical to us, but Congress is not set up to behave in that way. Anthony, uh, there's been a lot made of this motion to vacate, and one of the concessions that uh, Speaker McCarthy made to the Freedom Caucus is that now, first they reduced it to you only need five members of the House to call a vote to remove the Speaker. Now it's just one. Now my understanding is that was the rule uh, previously. Why was that okay? Why did the House work and operate okay with that being the rule previously? And now a lot of people are saying this is an indication of uh, forthcoming chaos for the next two years. Well, it it didn't. It was because of the presence of that rule that brought down two Republican speakers who at the time they were brought down were trying to do basically must-pass legislation had the audacity to sit down with Republicans and with the president, with Democrats and with the president to try to get things done. And their caucus, well, I shouldn't say their caucus, a center of gravity in their caucus was the Tea Party types, the Freedom Caucus, call them what you will, um, saber rattled sufficiently using that rule that speakers had to resign. I mean, you know, the, 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 there's, there's something to remember about this. It, it's there. You know, the rules are there to protect the, the minority as well. You know, ultimately, it's to make sure the majority gets their way, but it's also to protect the minority in, in some way. That means the rules can be used for great mischief. Now, the presumption is, oh, the other party is going to be doing the mischief. But getting back to what I said earlier, what if there is a part of the majority party that wants to cause mischief? That's why this 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 motion can be particularly problematic. You know, this may sound counterintuitive coming from a Democrat. I think it's important for the leaders of both parties to be strong, to be able to, in a in a rambunctious 435-member institution, in a difficult New York, United States Senate, to be able to sit down and do deals. You ask Congressman Jolly the question, what has to change? What ultimately has to change is the primaries, the fringes have to lose their primaries. And and the more mainstream compromising type candidates have to show that they can make those compromises and prevail. You know, uh, from, from Congressman Jolly's state, former President Marco Rubio will tell you that having the audacity to even sit down <laughs> and have a conversation about immigration um, leaves you as roadkill on the side of the road. And, you know, I, you know, on my show, The Middle, I'm, I'm, I commonly push off against the left and right. But this is a particular problem in the Republican Party because there is a bunch of them that they don't want anything. They just want you not to have anything. And that's a very difficult person to negotiate with. Yeah. And I'm sorry we uh, were not able to get a hold of uh, Tom Tancredo because I have a feeling that if he was in Congress today, he would be very much with the uh, the Freedom Caucus folks and he might have a, a different perspective. So we'll tr- keep trying to get a hold of, of him. But, David, uh, let me ask you about the status of this must pass legislation. Do you think there's a realistic possibility, for instance, that uh, Congress will fail to come up with a, um, a measure to raise the debt ceiling in time? And then what are the implications of that financially, sure. politically? What happens? Yeah, I, I think there is a real possibility. What I will tell you is we've gotten to the brink on the debt ceiling or the, the default of our debt in the past 
And we kind of know, to use the term stress test again, we know the evolution of the stress test. We'll get the Congress will get a notice from the administration, Department of Treasury, that they're having to use extraordinary measures. That's kind of the red flag saying, okay, team, time to get this done. Ultimately, it will get done because, frankly, corporate donors to the Republican Party will finally say, you got to stop rattling the world markets. So it, it will get done. Here's one of the things, though. Kevin McCarthy promised that it would only get done under certain conditions, and it will be a promise that he has to break. Similarly, though, on the annual budget process, that's where you get a government shutdown, very different than a debt default. I think you'll see a government shutdown. Republicans have fun these days with government shutdowns, so you'll see that. Now, why will you see both of those moments? It is because the slim majority of Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, just is not going to have the votes among the, his Republican caucus, but he's going to have to try to do it just with Republicans at first. And then secondly, and I'll play the role of Tancredo here, part of what he did in the rules package is he empowered backbenchers and middle benchers. And what Tancredo would tell you is that's a good thing. And I agree with that. Having, you know, I know Congressman Weiner was a backbencher at one point before he gained his seniority. I was a backbencher as well. Empowering more members to give voice to their constituents' concerns is a good thing for the body. The, the leadership can kind of choke off some of those independent voices. The question coming out of last week is really a qualitative one, which is, is it in this environment a good thing to empower backbenchers that depending on your view of the last the 2020 election and the theories of whether it was stolen, depending on your view of January 6th and the storming of the Capitol, depending on your view being espoused by these backbenchers on the Republican side, empowering them could be a good thing or it could be a very dangerous thing. And legislatively, what it means is you've empowered the people that actually are going to have a hand in shutting down the government. This wing of the party has moved from from less government to no government to now government's the enemy, and they're happy to shut down the government, which is why McCarthy ultimately is going to have to go to Hakeem Jeffries for some type of deal. Uh, we're going to continue with Anthony Weiner and David Jolly in just a bit. This is the other side of midnight. If time permits, we'll try and take some of your calls throughout the hour as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. soon be banned along with uh, gas-powered stoves. I'm not sure if that's covered in some of the proposals that have come out, but 
Um, I do think that if you play a, a song that's more electric-oriented, like Electric Avenue, we actually get a small rebate. So uh, be sure to tune in for that in the future. Talking about what's happening in Washington, not only what happened last week, but what the le- next two years are likely to uh, to look like. Uh, talking with former Republican congressman from Florida, MSNBC contributor uh, David Jolly, and uh, former Democratic congressman from New York, Anthony Weiner, the host of The Middle, and uh, a great podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Anthony, in terms of uh, where we go uh, from here, do you think that it's uh, likely that McCarthy will not complete his full term as speaker? We talked about how the speakership has sort of been watered down. You've talked about the need to have strong party leaders in both the majority and the minority. Does McCarthy end up cobbling together and holding this coalition together for two years, though? Look, I, I don't I don't know. I think to some degree, I mean, early on, what he's showing is he's doing kind of the easy things. These investigations are relatively easy to do. You can have a hearing all you want. You can issue subpoenas. Those types of things seem to be intended to assuage his base. The rubber won't hit the road for a while. You know, the, the one person who's cast a, a, a vote of no confidence in Kevin McCarthy's ability to get things done is Mitch McConnell in the Senate. You know, when the when the House and Senate re- passed a 4,000-page spending bill for the entire federal government that takes us all the way to September. One of the questions that occurred to many of our listeners on WABC is why the heck would McConnell go along with that? It's because he felt that there was a very good chance that, that Kevin McCarthy could not put together even the basics of a budget in the next year with this with this group that he had. So I, I think that, 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 he, that McCarthy is going to have to stay away from anything that's too controversial. You know, people don't understand some of the, 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 the that there are leadership fights all the time. I talk about this on the Middle Unplugged podcast that, that 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 dropped today. You know, the idea that people, you know, Nancy Pelosi was challenged by Harold Ford, challenged by Paul Ryan, uh, by um, uh, uh, what's what's the guy from Ohio, uh, uh, Tim Ryan, challenged by Kathleen Rice. Challenges to speakers they happen all the time. But what we learned in this process is there is a a bunch of members of the Republican caucus who don't mind at all really humiliating their speaker. If that's the dynamic, it's really hard to do your job as speaker. And then there was an element of the rules that got changed. And I don't know if you want to wait to go into this, but there is, a, there is a, at least a hint out there that, that McCarthy not only gave up this, this motion, to, um, motion vacate. to vacate the chair, but he also gave up seats on his most powerful tool, which is the Rules Committee. If he can't control what goes on on the floor and the Freedom Caucus has a veto on what actually makes it to the floor, you have to wonder if Kevin McCarthy will even try to do anything in the realm of legislating in the next couple of years. Uh, That actually was exactly the next thing I was going to ask is uh, there's been a lot of talk about the above board concessions, changes to the rules, like how long members are going to be able to review legislation before voting on them. Uh, You mentioned the motion to vacate, but there's also been a lot of allusions to, including by House Republicans, to these sort of secret concessions that we may not know the full nature of the deal. Uh, David Jolly, from what you're understanding, what are uh, the other concessions that these 20 uh, rebels actually got in exchange for supporting McCarthy? Yeah, so Frank, put me in the camp that that 
finds Kevin McCarthy to be one of the most untrustworthy individuals you can ever work with. I opposed him in 2015 when he tried to become speaker, and it was an alliance then that I created as a moderate. I shouldn't say I created. I was part of an alliance as a moderate with the Freedom Caucus to stop Kevin then, in large part over this question of trust and his unwillingness to actually move legislation. So what is in the deal? A lot of stuff that he's not going to honor as promises. What did not make the rules package that I think he has agreed to is first committee assignments. He says that he didn't agree to committee assignments, but the way assignments work is behind closed doors by something called the steering committee. The speaker has five votes, I think, and actually I believe he might even have six when you tally them all up. Scalise would have four and then other members three, two, and one. So not only does he have more votes on the steering committee to help influence assignments, but the speaker's position holds a lot of sway for the steering committee, right? Understand everybody wants to make the speaker happy. So he didn't have to write down, you know, Matt Gates, I will give you this assignment or, you know, member Smith, I'll give you this assignment. All he had to say is, look, behind closed doors and steering committee, I'm going to weigh in on your behalf. And then secondly, what I think he also gave away, which is becoming more and more obvious, is to unleash investigations that he previously would have dismissed, right? Just six months ago, he said, we don't need to impeach the, the, the DHS secretary. Now he says we need to. I think six months ago, he would have tried to hold back a move to impeach Joe Biden himself. But I think he's promised to let the House go ahead and move towards impeachment, regardless of where the facts come down. So it is in agreements like that where he has given away a lot. And this this goes to my reference to Elise Stefanik. The only pathway I see for Kevin McCarthy surviving, given the current dynamics of the caucus and the Republican Party, is to accept the reality that Elise accepted and become somebody that he has not been in the past but is a politician that's able to survive the next couple of years. Uh, talking with David Jolly and uh, Anthony Weiner, and I know we have a lot of conservative listeners uh, that uh, might be irked that we're having uh, either Anthony Weiner or David Jolly on, <laughs> let alone both at the same time. Let me tell you, folks, I, I worked hard to get a red meat-eating conservative that would uh, be a- a- on the exact opposite end of this. So it was not for lack of trying, but just deal and uh, listen with an open mind. Uh, Anthony, in terms of the rules in terms of the concessions um what what do they what will they actually mean for how congress does business what's different about being a member of the house now as opposed to when you left uh you know 14 years ago or 15 years ago well i mean a a better arc of time is when i arrived on capitol hill in the 80s as a staffer to my uh predecessor chuck schumer it was not uncommon to have all 12 appropriation bills taken up in what's called regular order, where members were, you know, the, these committees with their specialty, you know, looked hard at the line items that were in their responsibility. The entire federal government was divided up into those 12 committees. They would come to the floor. Members would offer amendments. Members would have things that they wanted to put in that were important to their districts. That that type of thing, I you know, I believe is a thing of the past, irrespective of any well-sounding um, rule change. I mean, it if you if you can just think of the problems that we had trying to get a speaker passed, think about trying to get, you know, just about every part of the federal government. If you want to, you can make it controversial and you can try to cut it because it has too much, or or vote against it because it has too much funding. 
I think it's very difficult that for any rule change per se to change the fundamentals of the of the logjam that we have over spending bills nowadays. Again, it, it returns to this idea that in order to have a negotiation, you have to have two sides that each want something. So they can everyone can get a little something to be able to to uh, to go back to their districts and say, listen, this is why I voted for this bill. The easiest vote is always to vote no on something. You can think of a thousand different reasons why to vote no on something. And right now, the center of gravity around no is a majority in Congress. And that's problematic. So I think while there are many rule changes that even Democrats have said, look, I think it's great to have a bill you can read for 72 hours. I think it's great to have appropriation bills done by regular order. I think these are great things to have. The practicalities of the partisanship that we have in Congress today, I think, are, are going to leave a lot of our listeners wondering why nothing seems to change. Uh, David, wh- why do you think that when there was a narrow Democratic majority two years ago and similar calls from uh, populists on the left to use the speaker's vote to enact some key concessions, whether it was votes on uh, universal health care or changes to the rules or a bunch of other things. We didn't see this. We saw the Democrats yeah. vote uh, behind closed doors and then uh, mo- almost all of them vote for Nancy Pelosi when it came time to do that. Why the change? And do you think if there is a narrow Democratic majority two years or four years from now, sort of the squad wing of the Democratic Party will learn from the Freedom Caucus. It was interesting. I did take note that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spent a lot of time talking to people like Matt Gates and Paul Gosar. I'm wondering if uh, she was looking at this and uh, kind of seeing a playbook for what they can do in a couple of years. <laughs> Training ground, huh? So, look, I, you can't dismiss the difference in leadership style of speaker candidates, right? Nancy Pelosi ruled with an iron fist but a velvet glove. John Boehner kind of similar to that as well. Paul Ryan served as a speaker who was kind of your friend, and so there was a certain allegiance to him. He was like your brother. You didn't want to cross him. Kevin McCarthy, honestly, is seen as very transactional, as I mentioned, uh, surrounded by questions of trust. And so part of the fracture was over that. I mean, consider how he kind of got rolled on a lot of concessions he said he would never agree to. He started out his negotiations saying, I'll never agree to those. Um, but you also saw the rest of the caucus, the 200 members with Kevin, kind of concede as well to the the other 20. I, I do think loosely there's something that should be considered, which is the diversity of the Democratic coalition right now is largely around ideology. Sure, there's questions about tactics, right? AOC might want to behave a little bit more like a Bernie Sanders. But essentially, you're talking about a diversity of ideologies in their coalition, which is easier to reconcile when it finally comes down to it. What we've seen in the Republican Party over the last 10 years is a coalition that is really fractured around their approach to governing, their view of governing. Do we just shut it all down? Do we blow it all up? Is compromise such a dirty word? Those are that's a harder coalition to keep together, and that was the fracture you saw. Right, the demands of the Freedom Caucus were, you're not going to work with Democrats, or we're going to take you down. It wasn't how much immigration reform is is good and how much gun control is bad and all that stuff. This was not around ideology; it was around a view of governing. I think that's the harder coalition to keep together. That happens to be a Republican coalition right now. Anthony, uh, same question. Exactly. I wanted to take a stab at that same question. Mm-hmm. I think there's, I think there's a, a difference. You know, Democrats 
you know, you you may believe in single payer health care like I did or Obamacare, which is a commercial based health care system. But at the end of the day, you believe Democrats have this notion of progressivity, of making progress by having legislation, of taking half a loaf. On the Republican side, you have people who want to blow up the bakery and burn it to the ground. I mean, it, it, we don't have that element, that nihilistic element about governing itself within our party. So when, when faced with the, the question, does, does Bernie Sanders rally around a transportation bill or around a stimulus bill that includes concessions to Joe Manchin? The answer is yes, he does, because he recognizes he's getting a whole bunch of other things that he cares about. It doesn't go as far as he would like. The, the analogy on the other side is that there are many, many Republican, many members of this Freedom Caucus and the old Tea Party wing of the party who believe that legislating in and of itself and programs uh, to solve problems in and of themselves are the vice. And, and, and it's a very different thing. I know we have a tendency to say, well, both parties are the same. They have the exact same problems. We really don't. The Democratic Party definitely has a, a more progressive, ambitious, call it whatever. Some people would call it a socialist wing. But th- those people are also half a loaf people. They, they, they're not going to vote no if they're getting some progress. Understood. Uh, let me also uh, pick your brain, Anthony, on an issue that uh, David Jolly raised earlier, which is the role that uh, gerrymandering, closed primaries and so forth have in uh, building more extremely ideological members of Congress. You know, I took note of the 20 House members that wouldn't vote for McCarthy and 14 of them. And this came as a little bit of a surprise to me. 14 of them are from states that let independents vote in Republican primaries. So it's not as if uh, all of a sudden all you have to do is allow independents to vote in primaries and it produces it produces more moderate compromise elected officials. What role do you think uh, electoral reform could play in obviating some of the polarization that we're seeing in Congress and in the country at large? Yeah, I agree with Congressman Jolly. It's the Rosetta Stone that solves a lot of our problems. I mean, if it, it, the the fact is that so many of of these districts are so pre- precisely drawn to make sure that one party or another wins it, then it becomes you only are concerned about being conservative enough or mm-hmm. liberal enough. Um, you know, I represented a district in Brooklyn and Queens that was fairly conservative, places like Glendale and Ozone Park and Rockaway and, and Sheepshead Bay. These are places that are all represented by Republican city council members. I think that, that I, you know, I'm not as much of a fan of open um, of open primaries and open elections as you are. But I think that gerrymandering has a lot to do with it. The bottom line has to be if, you know, I, be, you know, I believe that if every district was drawn square, just, you know, whatever might fall in that district, 750,000, the same old cookie cutter everywhere, you'd have, um, we would all be better members of Congress. You know, I, I, was, I was in New York City. I had one of the whitest districts around, even though I had the most, I was a most diverse city in, in the country. And that, that didn't benefit me. It didn't benefit my, my neighbor in Congress members who, who, who didn't have as much diversity in their district. 
I think that gerrymandering is at the source of so many of these problems. And uh, it's uh, it's difficult to see much progress being made on that, David. It seems like uh, whether it's your state of Florida where Republicans try to do the gerrymander or uh, states like New York where but for the courts, Democrats try to do a gerrymander. It doesn't seem like whoever's in part in power in any of these states is eager to make any progress on that front. Yeah, so a couple of forcing functions here. First, the jurisprudence of gerrymandering from the Supreme Court on down largely says it's a political question that the courts are going to stay out of unless there's a violation of civil rights, right? How are we adjusting majority-minority districts and including representation of, of all demographics? But shy of call it a voting rights, civil rights violation by the legislature, you then have to rely on citizen-led reforms. And that's only allowed in, I think, about 32 states. So take the other 18 states off the table because basically incumbents would have to pass maps that work against incumbency, and they're never going to do that. But you are seeing success in those other states. It is one reason that I'm no longer in Congress was in three years I had, I think, four different districts. And it was largely led by a voter initiative to try to create geographically compact districts. Now, once that was achieved, the irony was the four moderate members of the Florida delegation were tossed out. Myself, Gwen Graham, uh, Patrick Murphy, and the Ileana Ross Layton and Carlos Corbello seat. So the, the fairness question, how do we draw them? Is it a box like Congressman Weiner says? Is it geography as a test? I like the idea of uh, competitive districts, right, where you have to compete uh, for your seat every two years, whatever that looks like. Voters are allowed to draw that under under the court's current guidance, but it takes voters to successfully lead a referendum in their state, and that is just an enormous hurdle in virtually every state. All right, we're going to take one. Well, we, 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 we did, Frank, let me just make one mm-hmm. final point. On that. We, did, we did it in New York. We did it in 2015. We passed this constitutional amendment requiring nonpartisan elections, and that's uh, nonpartisan drawing of elections. And that's what wound up tripping up the Democrats and arguably giving the House to the Republicans. Well, you know, and again, as, as a lifelong independent, I'll point out that that uh, and I voted for that amendment, but it was bipartisan, uh, not nonpartisan. And, uh, you know, who could have foreseen that when you take a bunch of appointees, Republican and Democratic appointees, and ask them to draw the lines, shockingly, they won't be able to come up with a consensus <laughs> on what the lines look like. So there is a big difference between nonpartisan uh, districting and, and bipartisan. But I have to take one quick break. If you guys are willing to stick around a few more minutes, I have to ask you about uh, where we're heading in terms of George Santos and uh, where we're going with respect to the latest uh, revelations in terms of Joe Biden. David Jolly is here. Anthony Weiner is here. Uh, we'll take your calls. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is the Yardbirds featuring Jeff Beck, who unfortunately yesterday passed away at the age of 78. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined for the hour, uh, a very late night for both uh, former Congressman Anthony Weiner and former Congressman David Jolly, but we're enjoying uh, picking their brain and uh, in, indulging in some of their experience and their perspective, having spent a lot of time in Washington over the years. Uh, a lot of the talk in Washington and in New York these days uh, surrounds Congressman George Santos. And now uh, Republicans seem as eager as possible, at least here in New York, to have George Santos go away. Here was Al D'Amato on the uh, Cats at Night show talking about the need for George Santos to resign and the fact that uh, Nassau County Republicans are calling on Santos to go. This guy is a disgrace. He is an He's just incredible. I cannot believe it. And I have to tell you that the sooner he's going to be indicted and he's going to be convicted and on the financial fraud. Anybody who would lie like he is about his high school, about his college, about his jobs, etc. You don't think he lied about the campaign finances and all of a sudden they find $750,000 and all of a sudden he goes from poverty to having money. Believe me, he's going to prison. Anthony Weiner, I'll begin with you. Uh, one, because it could be argued that you lost your congressional seat for, for lying. Uh, but also, as we're sitting here over the last hour, one of the cable news networks, when they were doing this story and comparing uh, similar historical um, analogies, they played a speech of you very heated on the floor of the House and then uh, drew the comparison to George Santos. Well, what do you think about what uh, his hometown Republican Party is doing here? And uh, do you think he will end up uh, heeding the calls from these Nassau County Republican leaders to resign? McCarthy so far has said he was elected and he's not going to take any steps to get rid of him. Yeah, there there are a lot of similarities. I mean, I I resigned ultimately because I lied. And what led me down that path is just it became clear to me that the the weight of the investigations themselves, the ethics investigation, I didn't have any allegations of financial impropriety. And even the ethics investigation, what I had done had nothing to do with my official job. But just the idea that I have to defend it, I'd have to raise a bunch of money, I'd have to hire lawyers and the like. And at the same time, I, I wanted to protect my family from going through this. You know, I I think that, that that's, that's a lot. I think, and it, it I mean, I I have said this on my show. Something's going on with Mr. Santos. I think he's dealing with some some very deep-seated problems that he's going to have to manage. But putting that aside, that human element to this, you know, there is a way that just being investigated and the weight of having the the approbation and just it, it wears on you. I think the Nassau Republicans came to the conclusion if we can get to the brass tacks of it, they had a better chance of winning a special election than they did defending this seat in 2024. So they want to take the Band-Aid off and do it as quickly as possible. On the other hand, Santos represents, what, 20, 25 percent of, of McCarthy's majority right now. <laughs> so I can understand why McCarthy is is defending him. But it is kind of an untenable, an untenable situation. The big winner of that long endurathon that we went through to, to name McCarthy speaker was arguably Santos. I mean, the, all of the attention that entire week would have been on this one relatively obscure member of Congress, and that wouldn't have been good for the Republicans. 
I, I mean, it, it's hard to it's hard to say on the financial stuff. I should you know I, I you know Senator Senator D'Amato sometimes gets out over his skis a little bit. We don't know if he's going to be indicted or convicted, but that's one other element of this that could linger on for a while. You know, they in these types of things, you want to know right, what shoe's going to drop next. With Mr. Santos, it seems to be every every two days we're learning about another element of, of his background that was fraudulent. Uh, David, one of the new things that we've learned about George Santos is that an aide to George Santos actually was impersonating a chief aide to uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy in terms of uh, a fundraising initiative for uh, Santos's campaign. Does the narrowness of the Republican majority here make it unlikely that McCarthy is going to, say, refer this to the House Ethics Committee? Yeah, look, first of all, let's call a spade a spade. McCarthy and all these Republicans waited until they secured Santos' speakership vote and got McCarthy elected before any of them started speaking out this week. So there is a level of professional hypocrisy there. It's no surprise, right? This is politics, but let's call it like it is. Um, I Look, I... I think either Congressman Weiner or D'Amato, whomever said it, is right. It will take an indictment and conviction probably to have him thrown out of the House. The House historically has always deferred to home state voters and district voters to say, look, who are we to say that voters didn't know that he was lying to them when they elected him? The House doesn't substitute its judgment for the judgment of voters. But if someone is indicted, they quickly get removed from committees. And if they get convicted, if they don't resign by then, they get expelled. The only other scenario where he leaves is, as Congressman Weiner said, if the weight of it just gets to be too much for him personally. But look, Santos has shown himself to be a fairly audacious individual. I I think he has indicated he wants to try to follow the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates strategy, which is I'm the victim. I'm getting piled on by Democrats. And because I'm a victim, I need you to help fight for my survival. I just don't think he has enough currency or narrative to win that successfully like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others have. I, I also do wonder if uh, he's trying to take a uh, a page from the former governor of uh, of Virginia, um, who was looked like he was on the ropes. There was a lot of pressure for him to resign, Ralph Northam. And uh, all of a sudden, he just stuck it out, and the media moved on to another shiny object. There wasn't, they didn't obsess over him, and he was able to finish his four-year term and, and move on. Uh, do you think that the, the spotlight of the media will eventually move on from, from Santos, and he'll be able to kind of keep his head down the way the state senator from uh, Brooklyn, Salazar, was able to do when a lot of her uh, past kind of caught up with her? You don't hear about that anymore. She's just a regular member of the of the state senate here in new york what, what do you think anthony i think that the, the, there's an important difference you know with the northrop example there was a beginning middle and an end to what was going to come out it was some a picture or two that came out there was also some some political reasons why you know getting rid of him was was problematic because the next guy wasn't that much better etc the thing about the santos the santos thing is you've got a combination of three things one you've got santos you still have more things coming out about him. Two, you have an ethics investigation. And I don't know if Congressman Jolly had this, the same uh, take on the ethics committee. It's a 50-50 committee. They, they're going to re- make a report. They're, gonna, they're having an investigation. They're going to make a report. That's going to linger on for a while. And the third variable is there's going to be news that's going to get made around the financial 
element to this. Anytime you write documents, um, you know, you sign documents as a candidate or as an elected official that turn out not to be true, that could create legal problems. So there's just a lot of like burning embers here that could keep on going for a while. But let's but even if we if if he does stick around, you know, the people of the third districts are not going to be particularly well represented. I, I, I you know, I will eat this phone if he's get reelected in 2024. So um I, I, you know, the, the, uh, another interesting dichotomy here is that Nancy Pelosi never said to me, Anthony, resign. But what she did say to me, she said, listen, this is the impact that what is going on with you is having on your colleagues, on your friends, on the institution that you love and respect. It's the impact it's having on your friend, on your friends and family. You know, she understood. I mean, she had a certain fidelity to kind of getting things done. McCarthy has fidelity to keeping his speakership. So that does provide a very important safety net underneath Santos. But as Congressman Jolly said, and I agree, he just doesn't he, – he, it's very hard to rally around this guy, even for the most steadfast Republicans. Uh, let me end with this, just because it has gotten so much attention over the last 48 hours. Uh, the story of the uh, Joe Biden classified documents. Uh, there was uh, additional documents discovered yesterday, and uh, it's looking like there's going to be a, uh, a similar special counsel investigating the handling of the Biden documents uh, in light of the uh, Trump Mar-a-Lago situation. Uh, David Jolly, where do you see this Biden investigation going? And what does that do to the Trump Mar-a-Lago investigation, as far as you could tell? Yeah, look, a, a bad look for for Joe Biden. Certainly, I think you're seeing Democrats make the case today that Joe Biden's been acting in good faith, finding the material and turning it over. And Democrats are making the case that Donald Trump was acting in bad faith, hiding the documents, moving the documents, saying to the court he had produced them when he hadn't. I don't know how much longer that contrast can hold. I was listening over on Fox News tonight. Former Speaker Newt Gingrich was already making the case <clears throat> that this is this goes much deeper to China funding the University of Penn Institute that bears Biden's name and Biden having these documents. What what I think the big question is, do House Republicans add this to the list of investigations, but can they do so with a straight face investigating only Biden and not Trump. And then the same question of DOJ. If you're investigating Trump now, you at least have to acknowledge that this has to be looked at. Ultimately, the facts are going to bear out what they are, and we can all make a judgment in the end. Uh, Anthony, what do you think? Politically, what is the implication of this Biden issue? Politically, it's, it's, look, it, it gives people who want to say everyone does the same things the same way in this space, and that our guy is being persecuted. And it, look, it's it's not helpful. It, it, you know, I already hear it on our station, people saying, you see, Biden is just as bad as Trump. And we're not good as a news media, as a body politic, as a, as a, as a, as a society that talks about issues of separating wheat from the chaff sometimes. I think it's looking very different. If you look at all the facts line by line and you do the comparative between between Biden and Trump, but most voters are not going to do that. And I think it, it, it just makes it gives us another issue for us to be at each other's throat about saying the other guy's worse. And, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's a kind of the, you know, the oh, but about her emails is kind of like this has become back to the thing that we are. We seem to be unable to say, yes, but there are differences of degrees and there are nuances. We are not 
We are not a, a country that's very good at nuance right now, and this isn't going to help. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I very much enjoy talking to both of you, because especially now that neither of you are in Congress, uh, you seem to be very able to uh, call balls and strikes and give analysis that's uh, critical or laudatory of both sides. Uh, gentlemen, I know I kept both of you up uh, way past your bedtime today. I appreciate the time. I hope we can do this again in the future. Hey, good to be with you guys. Uh, David Thank Jolly and Anthony Weiner. You can check out Anthony Weiner's podcast at uh, wabcradio.com. You can also hear him every Saturday afternoon from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. Got our own phone number working again. 800-848-9222. Big thank you to Dan Herschel for his war- ro- work. And his role in getting the phones working again. I saw him uh, here first thing when I got in today and last thing when I left yesterday. So he's been working hard to make sure the phones are working again and make sure Verizon has gotten its act together. Until next hour, uh, in the words of the great Bob Barker, uh, make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I like to do is look at different laws in different countries, in different states, in different cities, look at them and say, would that work here? Would that work here? Now, I um, people may not believe this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I don't watch or look at pornography. I have looked at pornography, but it's never really been... um, you know, a big thing for me, right? The one time when in my life when trying to look at pornography was, this is the greatest irony of all ironies, when trying to look at prior, uh, pornography was a big priority for me was when I was too young to purchase it, right? When you're 13, 14, 15, and uh, the sexual activity you have, at least mine, I can't speak for other 13-year-olds, but the sexual activity you have is very limited. At that point in your life, your hormones are so just raging that all you're, you do is look for some opportunity to see anything resembling pornography. Ooh, yes. And yet, you're not old enough to purchase it. At least not legally. We all know there are certain ways that uh, young people find to get their hands on pornography and other things that are like pornography. But they're not allowed to. And I think that's a good thing, right? I think if adults want to look at pornography, that's uh, it's their business, that's their right. Children shouldn't be looking at pornography. So uh, it, uh, it, it's just a bad situation all around for a whole bunch of different reasons. So what I think Louisiana, what Louisiana is doing here is very interesting. In the state of Louisiana, 
in an effort to protect minors from accessing online pornography, because the Internet has been a game changer. The Internet has been a game changer in terms of allowing young people to see pornography. They, if you go to a pornographic website on uh, the Internet, and this has been the case for years, usually you will have to click a box that says, I am over the age of 18 and legally permitted to look at this content. Now, that has got to be the biggest joke on the planet. Do you think any 14-year-old boy is coming upon a uh, uh, website and then they see a thing that says, please uh, leave if you're not over the age of 18? Do you think anybody leaves? Of course not. They just click yes, and they'll watch their pornographic video. So what Louisiana has done is enact a new law requiring, ready for this, age verification on adult websites. Act number 440, which went into effect 11 days ago, now requires residents of the Bayou State to provide proof of their age with government-issued ID or a digital ID card before accessing pornographic websites. The act states that pornography is a public health crisis for younger viewers, citing that it contributes to the hypersexualization of teens and prepubescent children and may lead to low self-esteem, body image disorders, an increase in problematic sexual activity at younger ages, an increased desire among adolescents to engage in risky sexual behavior. So pornographic sites are going to have to determine whether a viewer is 18 or over to be, or they're going to be at risk of possible lawsuits by the state. Meaning, if you've got, I don't know what a big um, pornographic website is, but uh, let's say, let's say porn.com. I don't know if that's a real website or not, but let's pretend it is. Porn.com. You go there, and uh, if you're under the age of 18 and you're able to access that in Louisiana and you haven't shown them a proper government-issued ID or a digital ID card, you can be sued. In the state of Louisiana, websites uh, with content that contains at least a third of pornographic material must now implement age verification. And my question for you is, what do you think about this? Is this something that your state should do? New York, New Jersey, California, Florida, North Carolina, wherever you live. Is this something that your state should do? Require that if you want to view pornography on the Internet, you've got to show proof of your age and show that you're an adult. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Now, I could see a lot of gray area in this law. For instance, the law doesn't mention how that percentage is calculated. How do they get to 33% uh, percent and how they determine what pornography is? Because that is a very, very gray area. You might stumble upon something that is artistic to many and pornographic to others. You might stumble upon something that is meant to be clinical, that includes a lot of nudity, that some people might get their jollies on uh, in terms of uh, looking at as if it was pornography. But there's content that, um, uh, you know, that is clearly pornography. Pornhub, one of the Internet's largest online pornography sites, they've already enacted an identity verification page 
before entering their site in Louisiana. So they're adhering to this. And um, Louis, this is what it says. If you go to Pornhub's verification page, Louisiana law now requires us to put in place a process for verifying the age of users who connect to our site from Louisiana. So the verification page then requires users to verify their age via an app containing a digital copy of their driver's license. What do you think about this? Good idea? Bad idea. 800-848-9222. This law passed with bipartisan support. Republicans, Democrats, it passed unanimously in both the House and the Senate. And I'm curious, is this the next wave? Is this the way to keep children from accessing dangerous pornography? Why or why not? Not everyone's a fan of this new law. Um, One Twitter user tweeted in response, people in Louisiana have to use their driver's license to go to Pornhub. This is truly wild. So I get that. But you have to acknowledge that underage viewing of pornography is a problem. And this is at least one way of dealing with it. Another Twitter user said, so Louisiana just implemented a law where you have to use ID verification to use porn sites, LOL. I got out of that fascist state just in time. I got one email from someone on this issue. He says he opposes this on privacy, legal, and most importantly, morality issues. He says it's the parent, it's the job of parents, not government, to teach their kids to le- to respect limits. I hear that, and look, the privacy issue. You know, uh, I'm very into privacy rights. The privacy issue does resonate with me. That being said, there's a legal age at which you're allowed to do certain things. If you try to go and um, buy a pack of cigarettes, you're not going to be able to do it unless you show a valid government ID. If you go and try and buy some booze, you're not going to be able to do that unless you show a valid government ID. You go and try and buy a gun in states where you're allowed to go and just go to a gun store and buy a gun. You're not going to be able to do that without in most states. I know there's varying laws on this. Unless you show uh, proof of your age. So if pornography is in the same boat, meaning something that adults are able to consume or able to view or able to purchase, why shouldn't you have to show that same proof of identification? Now, obviously, there are all sorts of other potential implications for this. Now, let's say you're uploading your ID to someplace and let's say um, uh, Pornhub's user database gets hacked. All of a sudden, uh, it's possible to know who's logging into Pornhub. That could create a situation of uh, people being embarrassed if hackers leak this information out, maybe even being blackmailed. But let's assume that there might be safeguards in place for something like that. Would you like to see this in your state? 800-848-9222. Why or why not? As goes Louisiana, so goes the nation. Or as goes Louisiana, Louisiana just goes. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Billy in Queens. Hello there, Billy. Frank, you cannot police the Internet. You know, I never watched TV in my life, really. You know, I when I was a kid, I grew up on Long Island, my parents didn't let me stay up late and watch TV. And I'm better for it today. I'm the healthiest 60-year-old in the city, or any city, from here to Dublin. But because of my parents, you know, you can't do, you, oh, you want to log in and watch uh, Sex in the City? 
Yeah, you. That's why you have to have families. You have to have parents. You have to have. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I don't think anybody's against family or parents, Billy. But I guess the the question is, why why not? Why why should you not be able to? Uh, why should you not be able to require someone to show proof of their age before accessing an adult website? There's kids. I'm just saying. You're right. You're right. They should be on these things. I don't watch this stuff. I don't. Even, I don't even know anything about the internet. I'm not on social media. But even you know, Anthony Weiner. I was when he his first day on talk radio when he got out of the halfway house. I was the first guy to call in. When everybody else was lined up to call him down, you creep, you pervert, you degenerate. I really admired the way this guy bared his soul. And I said to Anthony, I don't think in the real world you would not have done what you did on the internet. Right, but Billy, I think you're getting a little the far. That's the real world. Right, but, but I think you're getting a little far away from the proposal, not proposal, the law in Louisiana. Um, is this a sound public policy proposal? Why or why not? You can't. It, it can't be done. It can't be done. Yeah, that's why you have, to have families, mommy, daddy, dinner. Well, thank you, Billy. How'd you grow up? Thank you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I had a family and we had dinner, right? But uh, I, I was uh, still able to, uh, when you put your mind to it from time to time, get access to pornographic materials. You, you shouldn't have been able to do that, though, as a child. So I don't see. I don't. I, I look. I'd want to think about this a little bit more before giving it my full-throated endorsement. But this idea does have some appeal to me. Is treating viewing of pornography by minors the same way that you treat purchasing of alcohol by minors, purchasing of a weapon by minors? There are certain things that you can do as an adult that you can't do legally as a child. So what's wrong with requiring proof? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. My friend Mike is uh, on the line. Mike, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, Let's see. We're still having a little bit of a phone issue. Mike, I got you there. How are you? Frank, how you doing, pal? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, Loving the show as always. I appreciate uh, appreciate the the conversation. Um, it's, It's very difficult uh, to deal with with this topic because it's ubiquitous. Kids now have access to the internet all day, every day. They're they're in, uh, they're shown to use it at school. They're told to use it in extracurricular activities. So the access to it is always there. It's not like uh, finding your dad's uh, stash of uh, Playboy's uh, in the shoebox underneath the the bed somewhere and and. You were able to to check it out, flip through, and then throw it back before he came home. Right, right. It's 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 everywhere at all times, so they're always constantly um, available through through the internet. That being said, um, there are other websites that require ID. Uh, kids can't just go and make bets on DraftKings sure. or FanDuel for. So they've figured out a way to to kind of safeguard it that way. So I guess if they model it along the same lines as these betting sites have or the gambling sites, um, you know, they have bet casinos. You can play uh, BetMGM and all these different um, casino websites. They have some kind of age verification so that your 12-year-old kid isn't isn't gambling away your entire inheritance uh, and life savings. So uh, that being said, it's an interesting topic. Uh, I, I tend to 
be more libertarian in the sense of live and let live, and it is up to the parents. But in, in, in this scenario where it is just so much easily accessible um, content, let's put it that way, uh, it's very difficult. You can't be a parent 24-7. Right. Well, and, um, and again, and I'm, I'm kind of a civil libertarian as well, Micah, you know, but that, in my view, that really applies to adults, right? So I don't have an issue with them having uh, laws that restrict what age you can be when you can purchase a cigarette or when you can purchase alcohol. And, right, it's illegal for uh, children to be looking at hardcore pornography also. So why shouldn't the same age verification, maybe using the same sort of a template that you alluded to with the online gambling sites, why shouldn't that be in place? I I tend to think, and again, I'd want to think about this a little more and any potential pitfalls that I might be missing, but I tend to think this is a pretty good idea. Yeah, and and I I, I don't uh, don't agree. At, at at a certain point, you do have to uh, take a look at the effect it has on kids and see how it does um, does affect them developmentally. And and like you said, you know we've all we've all been there. We've all been uh, uh, through uh, puberty and 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 hormones and and everything raging and all that stuff. We we get it. But uh, the point is, I think kids are are, are um, being forced to grow up much faster even than we were than our generation. So, I mean, I, I remember growing up, I don't remember 10 year olds talking about sex, but today now you have, you have 10 year olds and sometimes even younger bringing it and broaching the subject. So uh, I think, like you said, kids are being forced to, to grow up uh, a bit quicker than, than we were. And, and at some point, are we going to be talking to four year olds about sex? Mm. Five year olds? I mean, so, Um, I I do believe there should be some sort of safeguard. It's a great point, uh, Mike. And I think a lot of people, a lot of young people, in spite of the uh, the best efforts of uh, their parents, a lot of in spite of the attempts at censorship by the search engines and the big tech companies, a lot of young people do sometimes stumble upon. um, I know it's hard for us to believe, but they do stumble upon pornographic content by accident. They may be searching for one thing and then it leads down a, a certain road and then you end up clicking on certain things. And uh, I, uh, I I do think that the Internet has been sort of a game changer in this kind of thing. Hey, Mike, it's great to hear from you. Call again. Make this a regular, uh, a regular habit, okay? All right, Frankie. Great show as always. Be well, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I happen to be listening um, recently uh, to Howard Stern, and it's his birthday today, by the way. Howard Stern, who's known for being kind of a a purveyor of pornography, right? He said that children are too exposed to pornography and that it's creating sort of a a new type of lust within children. I'm paraphrasing here, listening as, you know, as half asleep. And he said that it's so distorted what children are expecting and when young people and teenagers especially are expecting from a uh, from from sex. You know, gone are the days as a 15 year old, a 16 year old where you don't know what you're doing sexually and you're stumbling around trying to figure things out. Now you're in an era where these kids, after watching hours and hours of pornography, they have all these expectations of how a sexual encounter is supposed to go, and I don't think that's healthy for anybody. Um, so that's my take. And, and again, I'd want to think about this a little more. 
And I do have concerns about about privacy when you're uploading your ID to a, a pornographic website, essentially, or an app that uploads it to a pornographic website. But this strikes me as a good way at reducing minors getting access to pornography. What do you think? Is this something, this Louisiana law that's been in place for 11 days now and which big porn sites like Pornhub are adhering to, is this something that other states should consider? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. What do you think, Neil? Well, number one, it goes for Howard Stern. I think he says that now because he already made his bones in radio. At the beginning, uh, could you imagine if they wanted uh, people to uh, do some sort of uh, identification before they would tune into his show? I mean, he was a raunchy guy uh, and his, at the beginning, you know, when his shows were on. So uh, I, I think he just turned around because he made his money now and he could say something like that. He wouldn't have said that at the beginning of his career. Uh, as, as for what you said about the kids, you know, your examples of tobacco, uh, guns, uh, alcohol, those are all commodities, physical commodities that you can hold. You know, I, I don't know what's what's more harmful to a kid to watch two people uh, having sex uh, on, on the internet or to watch a Quentin Tarantino movie with people getting their heads blown off. Well, look, I, you, I'm not. I don't want to defend violence either, uh, Neil. Uh, that's uh, that's. Uh, look, I get where you're where you're coming from on that. But what about? Um, and I get the commodity distinction that you make between something digital and something physical. But um, as as Mike just mentioned, you know, if you go on, look, children are not able to legally bet on sports. And if you go on one of these sports betting websites, you have to show a proof of age. You're not able to legally view hardcore pornography as a 13-year-old either. Why shouldn't you have to show a similar proof of age? Well, I mean, the betting, you, you can't go into a casino with a minor and bet either. I mean, uh, the betting is one thing. Also, that's a, that's a physical right, thing well, to do. Right, but when you say it's one thing, the, the, it's the same thing in that it's an activity that adults are legally allowed to do. But it's not an activity that children are legally allowed to do. No, don't get me wrong, Frank. I'm, I'm not really for kids watching pornography. But on the other hand, uh, I'm not for the government asking for ID and tracking where an adult goes on the Internet. Uh, so you, your concern is about privacy? Well, not only privacy. You know how many people don't want an easy pass? Because they're afraid that the government is going yeah. to see when they, when they go through, you know, over a bridge or something. I mean, you know, people are, are suspicious about that. But as it comes to porn, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let my kid watch porn. And I know you wouldn't. Uh, yeah, well, he's only one, so we'll wait till he's at least two, right, Neil? Right. Yeah, Neil, thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We have a first timer. We're sorry. Jack calling from the state of Maryland. Hello, Jack. Hey, Frank, how you doing? I'm doing okay, Jack. What do you think of this new Louisiana law? I I think it's a good idea to try to limit what children have access to. The problem is, and what I think a lot of people have a problem with, is that the more you have to do to limit children getting into stuff instead of the parents doing that, is more and more that now instead of the parents being responsible, the whole population is responsible. It's all put on us to have to prove that our age instead of them having to prove their age somehow. When you say us versus their age, I'm not sure I, I get what you mean. Legal age, 
legal age people who are 18 and over who have access to other things legally as opposed to children who do not have access to things. Why don't they have some kind of something to keep them? We, we need to figure out a different way of restricting them without everybody else being restricted and possibly, you know, as our government is sometimes trapped either by businesses or by the government. You know, everything that we do now is kept track of. Well, so that's it sounds like you're raising kind of the same concern that that Neil raised, which is sort of the the big brother issue and the potential violations right. when it comes to privacy. Yeah. And the problem is, is that no, nobody forgets anymore. You know, so like it could be fine now, but maybe 10 years from now, it's a big, huge thing where maybe they're like, OK, somebody had porn. So that's going to be a, a, you know, a jail sentence or something. There's no telling what happens in the future and what they decide to make legal or not legal. But the other side, like I said, my biggest point is, is even when you go to Walmart and try to buy things stupid like whipped cream or something, you have to try to prove that certain age. I feel like we need to come up with some way of putting the impetus on the underage people and not the people who are legally allowed to do these things. Right. Well, and thank you, Jack. I, I think the idea is exactly that, right? If you're underage, this hurdle of showing a legal government form of ID, that that will be the the impetus for, you know, for making it difficult for you to do that. I'm going to take one more call, and then I'm very excited. We're going to talk with uh, somebody very well-respected who has edited new, a new book on the UAP issue, Dr. Jensine Anderson. Uh, she is a Ph.D., she's a Harvard scholar, a brilliant woman, and uh, she has this terrific new book out, studying the societal implications of extraterrestrial communication and the like. It's a, um, it's an oversimplification. We'll get into that in just a bit. But uh, Tom in Hell's Kitchen has been holding. Hello, Tom. Yes, hi, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I think you could solve 95% of this problem if you put all porn under the domain of XXX, like the way they have .com, .net. Yeah, you know, I've heard heard that uh, before, that uh, that idea. And I think libraries that filter out pornography, they have some sort of software that's able to put it in a different area. Um, I I don't know. um, uh, But so let's say you did that. Right. How would you stop a 15 year old from getting access to a website that's dot XXX? Well, the parents would have to go into the phone and block it. Right. Okay. All right. Well, and the same with tablets and computer laptops and yeah, yeah. You know, I, the way I, I they think, have the uh, apparent restrictions on the laptops. Right. I, I still think there's uh, a lot of different ways. And thanks for the call, Tom. That young folks can get it. I'm interested in this Louisiana law, and uh, I am sensitive to what everyone's raising in terms of privacy. But I think this has a lot of potential. In all candor, we'll talk UAPs in just a bit, and uh, we'll take your calls as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. There's a radio show in America, and this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, that has spent more time uh, and more hours exploring the UAP issue and the issue of extraterrestrials than this one. However, a lot of the time, the researchers in this field, the leading uh, writers in this field, tend to be people that aren't necessarily taken that seriously in the scientific community. But something interesting has happened in the last few years. We're seeing Congress actually hold hearings on the UAP issue. We're seeing serious mainstream news organizations like the New York Times, like CBS News, like 60 Minutes, like Fox News and CNN, all look seriously at the issue of UAPs. Well, where are we going Dr. Jensen Andresen is a member of the research team of the Galileo Project at Harvard and the editor of the new book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. Now, whatever your level of skepticism of, or belief when it comes to UAPs, I think if you think about the societal and academic implications of something as groundbreaking as communications with extraterrestrial uh, intelligence, that is just limitless in its possibility. I want to welcome uh, Dr. Andresen to the program. Uh, Dr. Andresen, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, thank you so much, Frank. And please just call me Jensen. I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate that. Thank you, Jensen. Um, let's, before we talk about your book, just to give folks a little bit of perspective as to who you are, you've got, um, a lot of postgraduate degrees from some of the most revered academic institutions in the country, but you're a member of the research team of the Galileo Project at Harvard. What is the Galileo Project? What do you guys do there? Okay. So, um, uh, first I'll make, uh, a comment, which is my interview with you and everything I say in the interview is, you know, really my own opinion. So I'm not tonight going to be speaking sure, on behalf sure. of the guy. I just need to put that caveat out there front and center. However, the Galileo Project is an incredibly exciting endeavor. It was started by Professor Avi Loeb and um, Frank Laukian and those are the two co-founders of the project. And essentially, the impetus was, let's have our own data collection effort. So we're not dependent upon the government to provide data for scientists to analyze. 
because who knows how long that could take. I mean, for various, some of them incredibly good reasons, uh, classification, sensitivity of sources and methods, instrumentation, all that sort of thing, the government may not want to release the data that it has. And so Avi, he was like, hey, you know, we know how to build in- instruments. We're astronomers. We can not, not that all of us are astronomers, but why don't we just collect our own data and analyze that? So that was the impetus behind the project. And so it's, it's an incredible group of people I'm from all over the world, some of the best engineers I've ever seen. So I'm really privileged. Well, to that's be terrific. Uh, no, that, we're lucky that you're doing that, that work. So let's talk about this book that you've uh, helped to edit, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Social Implications. You've got a lot of different perspectives on uh, a very controversial, very interesting subject here. A lot of very well-respected people as writers in this book. What was the impetus for this book? What, um, what are you guys hoping to achieve by compiling all these different perspectives on the question of extraterrestrial intelligence? Right, exactly. So I'm the lead editor. It was my idea. What I really wanted to do was broaden the conversation. I felt that after the 2017 New York Times article that really 95, 99% of the conversation was from a national security perspective. I mean, if that was real and, you know, governmental kind of idea. And, and I felt that a lot of the talking points were being repeated across platforms, across different media outlets. And I thought it was time to kind of open the conversation up. Because this topic is so enormous. And as you said, I mean, just you hit the nail on the head, the the implications are so far reaching that I thought it made sense to have, number one, an international group of people talking about it, which is why I really went out of my way to invite people from different countries to contribute to the book, but also to look at it from a multidisciplinary perspective. So what might a scientist say? What might an astronomer say? What, what, you know, what does a philosopher have to say about the topic? Um, and so that, that was basically the idea. And uh, you, one of the areas that I find so fascinating is what it does to theology. Uh, and you explore it from a, not only a philosophical, a scientific, and uh, a mathematical, but also a theological point of view. And there's some terrific essays in here. Uh, one of the one of the chapters that uh, that you've written for this book is mind of the matter, matter of the mind, and it's a chapter that considers the academic and societal implications of creative acculturation with extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, for those of us without multiple postgraduate degrees from Ivy League schools, what exactly is uh, creative acculturation, Jensine? Well, can I just Frank? say thank you uh you read the chapter <laughs> i did indeed i always try to you do that did. i can tell that you did because um a lot of people you know don't they read the title and and go to the next thing so thank you so much that means a lot to me so yeah that was so most people are familiar with the idea of cultural assimilation and i really didn't want to use that word assimilation. So assimilation would be, and, and okay, we need to, what I was doing is I was differentiating the intra-species 
situation from an interspecies situation. So intra meaning within. So most people think about assimilation within the human species. So we have all of these examples historically of a dominant culture assimilating into itself smaller cultures, indigenous cultures, let's say. We, we know all about that from the history of humankind, right? And, and usually the culture that might have the most weapon systems, might be the most fierce militarily, um, will have the ability to assimilate into itself the less dominant cultures within our own species at an intra-species level. But my thought was, I don't think that's at all what's going on here. So at an inter, meaning between different species level, when you have two incredibly intelligent species, how might that process of coming together look? And so, again, I didn't want to use that word assimilation, so I used acculturation. Because I think if you look at the history of this topic, and, and there, it has a long history. This did not just start with the Nimitz encounter in 2004, not by any stretch of the imagination. We have a very good accounts, historical record going back to the late 1700s, the early 1800s. There's just so much, and that's just within the United States. But if you look across cultures in the literature, let's say it's ancient Sanskrit literature, I, I, I can read Sanskrit a little bit. It's tough, but I muddle my way through. Anyway, if you look back at that literature, we have accounts going back over a thousand years. And what I have noticed is that it's not like a, a dominance thing. It's not that this intelligence is just assimilating humankind into its way of doing things. Not at all. It's very gradual. It's very gentle. It's very um, reciprocal. And so that's, that's the idea about cultural uh, acculturation, creative acculturation, as I say. And it was my idea to introduce that notion so that we could talk about it in a way that didn't immediately reduce the conversation to, you know, is it a threat or not? You know, I, I, since you've read the chapter, you know, I think it is not, but I wanted people to realize that you can't extrapolate from what has happened between two human cultures to what is going on now between humankind and this extraterrestrial intelligence. In the chapter, you do say that uh, you don't think all UAPs are extraterrestrial in nature, but you do think, uh, citing some of the uh, historical examples that you just alluded to, that you do think that uh, many of them throughout history are extraterrestrial in nature. And you get into what uh, some top-level uh, people in the government, presidents, heads of the uh, CIA, heads of um, you know the director of national intelligence, and you get into what they've sought to do and what they've um, said publicly on the issue of UAPs. 
One of the things that I find really divides people that are believers that uh, that extraterrestrials have made trips here is the level of what they believe the government's knowledge is. Based on your research and based on your looking at this, are you of the belief that there is sort of a fifth column within the government that is keeping this information from getting out there? Or do you believe that the government is just as naive as uh, as we might be on this issue? I think that you can't. The government is not a monolithic entity. So what we need to do, I think, to explore that question, which is you know fantastic question is to look at different branches of the government and different entities within the government to determine what one may know and what one may not know. So, for example, let's just start with what most people are familiar with, which is ODNI, the Office Director of National Intelligence, and its recent efforts on behalf of this topic. And so I would say, and again, these are very, you know, this is very much my personal opinion, that ODNI and certain higher echelons within the Department of Defense, because as you know, ODNI, um, Avril Haines, is working with Kathleen Hicks at the Department of Defense. They're kind of in alignment with one another. I think that at that level, there is not that much knowledge of this topic. And you know, they may have some data, they may have some videos, but in terms of a deep knowledge or any real careful analysis, I think they're at the beginning stages. However, I do think that historically speaking, CIA has had a lot of information on this topic and that probably within the CIA somewhere, There's going, not across the board, but there's probably some sort of legacy analytical endeavor with respect to data that was collected all the way back at least to the 40s, if not to the 1930s. Because even in the 30s, and I point this out in the book, or in that chapter, which is that even within ufology, there has been a narrative that has said that really this started in the 40s when humankind exploded the first atomic bomb. And that's when you start to see a lot more UAP activity. And there is some truth to that, but there's also a lot of evidence from the 1930s, especially in Scandinavia. And I, there have been a few researchers out there who have done tireless work with FOIA getting government documents declassified. And and you can really see the documentary evidence of some high-level, like FBI, CIA-type knowledge of what was going on in Scandinavia. So I do think that there's more knowledge probably within CIA and, of course, within the Air Force for a lot of different reasons. And you'll... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just, no, I'll stop. Please. No, I I was just going to remind the audience we're talking with uh, Dr. Jensine Andresen. 
Uh, she is uh, an editor and one of the authors of the book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. There are some fascinating chapters in this book looking at the question of extraterrestrial communication and interaction from every different perspective that you can imagine. And uh, there's now a paperback version of the book that's available. When this book first came out, it was very pricey. It was geared mainly towards academics, but now it's uh, been priced more towards uh, consumers. And I think that's a great thing because it'll get more people reading this. Uh, now, Jensine, we do have a lot of skeptics in our audience as well. Y- you've alluded in our conversation and in the chapter that you wrote, Mind of the Matter, Matter of the Mind, that there's substantial evidence to suggest that a lot of these UAP experiences have been extraterrestrial in nature. Um, you mentioned the Nimitz in uh, 2004. You alluded to 1947 when the uh, Roswell incident occurred. What else is there in terms of evidence that you can point a skeptic to as uh, conven- convincing or compelling proof that extraterrestrials have been to this planet? You know, I don't personally put a lot of emphasis on Roswell. So I have that that story has gone through so many iterations and a lot of people have weighed in and it's not something that I've spent sufficient amount of time studying to have a very clear picture of what's going on with the Roswell incident, which is very different from me saying I disbelieve that it occurred. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just certainly not an expert on Roswell. Um, I think that some of the most compelling accounts that I have seen is a a whole bunch of literature having to do with back in the 30s, what were called ghost flyers. And those were primarily in Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. But there were also a few ghost flyer incidents even in the United States. Some of those accounts I find very, very credible and very compelling. And then there's a whole slate, I mean, just really well-documented government documentation having to do with what was occurring in the 40s, mostly in the United States, and mostly in conjunction or in proximity to nuclear installations. So all kinds of green fireballs, which professional scientists of the caliber of you know, Oppenheimer said these are not meteors. And so, for example, in the 40s in Los Alamos, they created a study group made up of scientists holding, you know, classified, you know, very highly credentialed people that had been working on the bomb project. And to, to study all of these incidents that were occurring near nuclear installations. And the individuals that comprise that study group, all scientists, all with classifications, um, said this is, these are not meteors, but we, we don't know what they are. So that, I, that whole decade I find very interesting. And then, you know, even in – I, I kind of wanted to go back and, and do a real quick run through what's occurred at the level of government sure, you know, just since 2020. So, and then I'm going to go back to the other half of the answer to your question. So just so we're all on the same page, I just think this is really important. So I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. So August 14, 2020, that's when the Department of Navy established the UAP task force. 
And at that point in time, the acronym UAP was Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, right? Okay. A little over a year later, November 23rd, 2021, DOD established the Airborne Object Identification Management Synchronization Group with the completely unpronounceable acronym AOIMSG. And when AOIMSG was established, UAPTF was disestablished. Because I've heard a lot of people make a mistake about that in podcasts. They're like, oh, now it's dueling organizations, the and, UAPTF on the one hand and AIMSOG on the other. And, and, and Jensen, we, we are going to have to bring the conversation to oh, a sure. close in about, in about a minute, but I'm fascinated. Oh, and okay. I know we've, we've only scratched the surface. Maybe we could continue the conversation uh, next week, but if you wanted to just put a button on the government aspect of what you were alluding to here, please do, and then we'll continue the conversation uh, next week or the week after that if we can. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so then July 20th, 2022, AOIMSG was renamed to the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO, which remains today in operation and is the lead with Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, very well credentialed uh, gentleman, used to be chief scientist at DIA's Missile and Space Intelligence Center, heading that up. And then only a few weeks ago, December 17th, they renamed the acronym from Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon to Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon. And then if I've got 20 seconds left, the two pieces of legislation that have intersected with this are the NDAA for fiscal year 2022, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, and then the NDAA for fiscal year 2023, which was just passed. And Section 1683 in the former and Section 1663 in the latter. So that's our recent history. And so that kind of sets the table for what government does or does not know and which branches do or do not know what they do or do not know. Uh, Jim Seen, we're going to have to end it there. I really appreciate the conversation. I want to encourage people to check out the book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. Dr. Jensen Andresen, let's talk again soon. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Today would have been Kirstie Alley's birthday. Unfortunately, we lost her um, last year. 
And I was a big fan of Kirstie Alley. And uh, I'm watching the series Cheers now. I've seen it before, but my wife is watching it for the first time. And Kirstie Alley's character in that show, Rebecca Howe, is a big fan of the Righteous Brothers. And there's this whole season where she's courting a multimillionaire. Maybe he's even a billionaire. I don't know. And uh, this boyfriend of hers is so wealthy, he actually gets the Righteous Brothers in two separate episodes to sing uh, some some of her favorite songs to her directly, including this one. So uh, I, I wasn't sure kind of what music to play in um, in honor of Kirstie Alley's birthday, but this certainly fit the bill. It was certainly top of my mind, right? All right, 800-848-9222. Uh, those of you that are holding, I don't want to rush you. We only have about a minute here. Uh, so we'll get to you after the uh, top of the hour. I will say this. You know, uh, we try and watch carbs in the Morano household. So a lot of times my wife and I both enjoy pizza, but sometimes we'll eat the cauliflower pizza, which has less carbs in the crust and everything. Yesterday, my wife went to the grocery store and she said, well, let me try and pick up the pizza made from chickpeas as well, chickpea crust pizza. And we did a taste test yesterday with the cauliflower crust pizza versus the chickpea crust pizza. I have to tell you, the chickpea, we both agreed, the chickpea crust pizza was five-star. It blew the cauliflower crust pizza away. So if you're a cauliflower crust pizza person and you're trying to stay away from the full carbs of pizza... Think about trying this chickpea crust pizza. It's good stuff. We do the chickpea pasta as well. It's very good. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Now, I am a fan of the New York Metropolitans. That's my favorite professional baseball team. I am also a longtime Seinfeld fan. Where do those two areas intersect? Well, they intersect with Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez was uh, in one of the finest episodes of Seinfeld ever. It was an early episode of the series, which really did set the stage for what was to follow. He was great in it. And uh, I think Keith Hernandez, he was a great ball player and uh, influenced some of my um, decision to play first base because he was someone that I really looked up to and admired at both defensively and uh, and just as a, a team leader and a clubhouse leader. But I also really looked up to him. I don't know looked up to is the wrong word. I always got a kick out of the stories that you'd hear about uh, Keith Hernandez as a guy that was a man about town, a guy that was something of a ladies' man, a guy that would go out to dinner and party and have a good time. I used to hang out before it closed, obviously, at uh, Elaine's, a terrific spot on, um, you know, on Second Avenue uptown. 
And there's a book. I have the book. I got it signed by Elaine. And there's a book all about the stories that went on at Elaine's. And there are plenty of stories regarding Keith Hernandez and when he was gallivanting out at Elaine's. Now, got to meet Keith Hernandez a couple of times when I was working for the Brooklyn Cyclones. Really nice guy. I don't really know him, though. He wouldn't know me if he uh, ran over me. And I think he does a great job as a commentator um, on the Met games now. So anyway, sometimes around – we put Carmine to bed usually around 7.30. Usually uh, I still have a lot of work to do because once Carmine goes to bed and after we've had dinner, that's my time to start really working on the show in earnest. I try to squeeze in as much work as I can when Carmine's napping, but you know, obviously you're limited in what you could do when you're chasing around a one-year-old. So – a lot of times uh, I'll put something on radio or on television in the background as I'm working. Now, when the baseball season is on, it's easy to know what to put on. I put on the Met game. When there's no baseball season, I'll usually put on, because um, my wife can't really stand wrestling. I like wrestling to put on in the background. She doesn't go for that. So if she's in the room, sometimes I can get away with putting on some news. And one of the shows that I enjoy putting on in the background is Tucker Carlson. So I'll put on Tucker Carlson. If he says something that I'm interested in, I'll pop my head up and see what he says. And uh, if not, then fine. He just does his thing. Last night, I see that he's promoting an interview with Keith Hernandez. And I immediately, as a Met fan and as a Seinfeld fan, I stood up and took notice. Whoa, Keith Hernandez. And Tucker does kind of what I do with these Racket Report podcasts. He has his show that everybody can see. Um, and then he has these special these special shows, right, which are limited only to subscribers, I think, on whatever their subscriber side is, Fox Nation, I believe. And he gives you a preview of the whole interview on uh, on his TV show in the hopes that you'll be interested enough to – want to see the whole thing. And that's what we do on the, with the Racket Report, right? We play you these snippets of interviews in the hopes that that will whet your appetite and you'll want to go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the Racket Report online and kind of listen to the whole thing. So anyway, this was a really interesting aspect of this interview that I'm about to play you from Tucker Carlson and Keith Hernandez. And I suspect that the people that are awake right now listening to the show are in a unique position to react to what Keith Hernandez says here. So, well, let me play what he says, and then I'll give you the question that I'd love to have you address. This is Keith Hernandez talking with uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News yesterday. How do people play at a high level with a hangover? You can't do it. Make a habit of it. <laughs> yeah, I bet you can. It'll catch up to you. Chicago was the place. Wrigley Field. One of the great things about Wrigley Field was that it's the same ballpark that when Ruth made the point, yeah, the home run. So you're in that clubhouse. It was this tiny clubhouse, tiny, and you had to walk up the stairs and over the people. You could see the people and they throw beers at you. It was just fun. It was great fun. I loved Wrigley. But when you sat in your locker, you go, gosh darn, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig sat here. Yeah. You know, Stan Musial, you know, all the greats. 
And here I am in the same locker as them. But getting back to your point, Russian division, you can go to a bar in Russian division at 11 o'clock and it's empty. You go at 1 o'clock, it's packed, and it would go to 4. Now, if you stayed out to 4, don't, don't go to bed. Don't try to sleep. Just stay up. I did it three times in my career just because I, I had to do it. And I, and I got out the first base, and I said, Lord, please, no ground balls today. No, no tough plays. I promise I'll never do it again. So do you hear what he said there? If you're up till four, the best thing to do is just stay up and not go to sleep. Now, I was really interested in that because up until about, um, I don't know, 2004, 2005, that was my approach. And again, you can't do this too often. But my approach was always if you're up until a certain time and then you've got to be up early the next day, you just stay up, right, rather than try and go to sleep and um, go to work or go to school and and go to sleep and be sleepy, the best thing you can do is stay up. And then one of the things that happened when I was working in radio is I got I befriended Mark Simone. And uh, Mark, the way he trashes me now, you'd never know it. But Mark and I were pretty close for a time. And I really viewed Mark as uh, kind of a mentor, not only in radio, but in terms of how to handle the lifestyle of being a bon vivant while still being productive. And so I asked Mark when he was doing the morning show, uh, he was filling in on the morning show that I was producing, and that morning show started at 5 a.m. at that time. And I asked Mark, and because he would go out at night, and he was not really much of a drinker, but he would be out until 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, 1.30, 2 o'clock, and then be on the air, dressed to the nines, and prepared to do a show that began at 5 a.m. And so I would ask him, what's the key, Mark? If you're out late and you got to get up early, is the best thing to do to just stay up, as you heard from Keith Hernandez there, or is the best thing to do to get your 45 minutes of sleep or an hour of sleep? Mark didn't hesitate in answering me. What he said was, no, 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 no. An hour is always preferable. 45 minutes is always preferable. So what Mark said is what I have gone by for the last 17, 18 years, which is if you can get 45 minutes of sleep, you get 45 minutes of sleep. If you can get an hour, you get an hour. If you can get 20 minutes, you get 20 minutes. And um, that's kind of the the advice that has been my guidepost since I first heard it. And my question for you is, you're awake right now. Right. Chances are you're awake because you're either up early or you're up late. In your experience, which approach serves you better? Is it to the Mark Simone approach of if you can get 45 minutes, you get 45 minutes? Or is it the Keith Hernandez approach, which is no, 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 no. Once you're up past 4 a.m., and you got to be up early the next day, you stay up and soldier on, and you're less tired that way. Which have you found to be more helpful and better, you know, I don't know, better for productivity's sake? 800-848-9222. If you can get 45 minutes, do you get it or do you stay up? 800 848 
Two, two, a bunch of people holding on various matters. Uh, We're going to get to as many of you as we can here, but I am curious as to your answer to that question. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to um, Mike in Parts Unknown. Hello. Hello there, Mike. What is on your mind? Hello, Frank. Parts Unknown, Myrtle Beach, South Kakalaki. I got to mention this about Keith Hernandez, longtime Mets fan. Classic games, old ball player, yada da. The thing is, go with Mark's uh, uh, credo. If you can get 45 minutes to an hour, take it. I worked all the shifts when I did my 25 years with the MTA. The first 16 out of 25, we worked track department, engineering. Rough work, man. So, you know what? Yeah, if you can get what you can get, I mean, it must be nice when you're in your 20s if you don't want to sleep, like he said. And good thing they retired his number. The Yankees retired every number, please. Uh, but that's my take, uh, Frank. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep soldiering on. Uh, that's why you tune in. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. Tom is at the Jersey Shore. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank. I, I enjoy your show. You take and when you talk about New York and all that stuff. I got Thank a little you. bit of a beef with the Keith. I mean that, Frank. You have a great show. Thanks. Appreciate it. Your, your, your issue, your knowledge of uh, New York. There's a major butt coming granular. I know there's and a I major butt that. coming. Be but ready. Buckle up. I beef with you about hero worshiping Keith Hernandez. Well, I wouldn't call it hero worship. I, I would say when, when he played for the Mets, I was a fan of his. Uh, and, um, you know, because I was young and a big Mets fan. And uh, then uh, when uh, I was uh, younger and going out in my gallivanting days, I would hear these uh, these stories of him being a night owl and uh, uh, being surrounded by a bevy of beautiful women and uh, being able to be productive the next day. And, yeah, I did have a little bit of an admiration uh, for him. But, no, I, I wouldn't put it in the, the category of hero worship that I have for somebody like Shatner. I, 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 I didn't mean that, Frank, to be critical. Sure, okay. And, okay. and, and anybody that has a problem with Keith Hernandez as a player, they don't know baseball. Theory. Uh, great player. Here's my problem with Keithy Boy. When the cocaine stuff came out uh, with him and Strawberry and Gooden, he was the first guy to drop a dime on a supplier. Mm-hmm. Now, now, and that's, you can look it up. Okay, he testified against the guy. Now, what do you do if you're the guy that delivers sandwiches and and soda into a major league clubhouse and somebody says, Hey, you got a package for me? Well, you know, if I'm that kid that was never a coker, never did it, never would, um, you know, I'm going, wow. You know, talking to Keith Fernandez, Dwight and uh, Daryl. Yeah, I'm going to get it. But uh, Keith showed himself to be a coward a complete coward, and testified against this guy. And this guy went to jail. He walked away uh, from this. So I didn't like that. And yeah, I, I don't I blame you. It. I don't blame you, Tom. That's all valid, and I appreciate you mentioning that, and certainly his drug use and his influence on uh, Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry negatively is uh, is well well known as well. But I don't know, and thanks for the call, Tom. I don't know that that's necessarily related to the question I'm raising here, which is if you're up late, are you better off 
staying up, staying awake, or are you better off trying to get 45 minutes of sleep? That's kind of the question that I'm hoping some of the night owls or early risers that happen to be listening to me right now can answer. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Maryland. Hello, Joe. Hi. How do you do? Great. Yes. On the staying up late, I've always found that getting as much sleep afterward is best for me. Well, and so you don't get groggy if you sleep for, say, an hour or two. Uh, it doesn't make you difficult to function. You, you, you think you agree with the Mark Simone approach. If you can get 45 minutes of sleep, get 45 minutes of sleep. Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, Joe, that's been what I've been doing, and it's worked well for me uh, in my experience. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in Manhattan. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Um, yeah, I told you uh, the call screen. You know, what I used to do, I worked on Wall Street for many years. And all thing is that, you know, we party hardy back in the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. What I would do is when I got home, I basically would take a shower, get dressed, and sit in the chair. And all thing is that when the alarm went off, because I had two alarm clocks, one in my bed, which I basically wouldn't sit and lay in because I've had bed. You know, sometimes you wake up and you, and you fall, you, you sleep past, but then I have one in the bathroom. So all thing is that if I had to get up and take a shower, the alarm clock's in the bathroom, and that's it. But the whole thing is that I'd stay awake. I, I'd try to stay awake, put the TV on, because once you start dozing off, especially if it's like 4 or 5 o'clock, and you have to be at work at 7, what would keep me awake is when I get to work, I get myself a bagel and two double espressos, and well, that was it. And so then the, the, your the, concern would be the reason that you wouldn't go to sleep. Your concern was oversleeping? Of course, and not to mention because once you do get tired, and as you just said, I mean, back then, I can't do these what I did back then, but the whole thing is that, you know, when you're out there and – you with clients, you're out with people from work and everything, and you know how Wall Street was back in the day. Oh, sure. And I'm like, you oh, know, yeah. that, that's the whole thing. It's just like you're out there at three, three, you close the bar up, and by the time you get back to your building, and it's like, oh my God, it's like four thirty. You, you see this lunch starting to rise, and I'm like, if I lay my head down on a pillow, forget it, I'm finished. And the whole yeah. thing is that, and, and I had to find a way to develop a routine. So I had the alarm clock just in case if I didn't take a shower, I just I sit in the chair. Put the alarm clock in the bathroom loud enough that it wake my neighbor next door, and I get up and I say, "Okay, turn the water on, get ready, and go." And that's it. And then I pay the price later on during the day. It's like when Keith Sanders says, "Please don't let it be a bad day." Right, and with, sure. with, with Wall Street being the way it was, it's like sometimes it was crazy. And all thing is that you learn to adapt. But basically, it's, as I said, it's like burning the candle at both ends. You know, you work in a stressful environment. And then you work hard, play hard. Yeah, I, again, oh, I, I, Joe, I, I get it. I've been there. I, I know, I, again, I never worked on Wall Street, but uh, I've worked in a, a similarly stressful environment and a work hard, play hard type of atmosphere. I get that. And uh, look, th- what you're describing, the doomsday scenario that you're describing of oversleeping, that's happened to me. Um, the, where you try, all right, let me get my 45 minutes, let me get your your hour, especially if you've been drinking, quite frankly. You end up oversleeping. You you hit that snooze button on your alarm. Maybe you even turn that alarm off, and you sleep right through it. That's happened to me many times, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons that prior to this Simone intervention from 17 years ago, I, my attitude was always: if you you know don't risk oversleeping, you stay up. But I find that if you can get that hour of sleep, it does help. It really does help and uh, can sometimes make the difference between, you know, just being totally incoherent and just having a tough day. Curious what your experience is. 800-848-9222. If you're up late and you have to be up early, are you better off staying awake 
or do you get an hour of sleep? 800-848-9222. Gino's in Brooklyn. What do you think, Gino? Hello. Yeah, Simone doesn't have an intervention. I've seen him myself. He's a tea toddler. Don't listen to him. Well, no, no, but he wasn't talking about booze. You know, he was just talking about... Sleep. Yeah, burn in the midnight aisle. Right. Yeah, but you and I don't have the discipline he has, right? <laughs> so when we stay out all night long, we're you know we're on a bender usually. Fair enough. But I've I've learned I've learned if you're getting under two hours of sleep, right? You, I, I think you're just ruining yourself. If, if it's over two hours, three hours, whatever, and that happens sometimes. You get another two hours of sleep, you're just wasting your time and denting yourself, maybe even hurting yourself. No good. Might be good for Simone, but no bueno. So your view is two hours is the make or break point. If you can get two hours, get two hours. If it's less than two hours, you're better off staying awake. Absolutely right. Because, you know, when you wake up on that under two hours, you just feel like a train ran you over. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I don't feel, I I never feel like it's worth it. Okay. Fair enough, Gino. Thank you. Tom in Rye, New York. What do you say? Hey, Frank, I work at night. I work during the day. I work all different hours, and I just got home now, and I need to be back up around 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm pretty wired right now. If I go to sleep and try to wake up for, you know, 6, 7 in the morning, I'll be shot for the whole day. So I'll I'll wait and stay up, and then somewhere during the day I'll catch myself a 2, 3-hour nap, and then hopefully by the next time I go to sleep I'll catch up the rest. And that's that's how I tend to play it. So basically you're saying the same thing Gino was just saying, which is uh, if you can't get at least a good couple of hours, you're better off staying awake. Otherwise, you you doom yourself. Absolutely. If I go to sleep now, I'll never make it in the morning. I'll, I'll, stay, I'll stay asleep. So I'm going to stay up and I'll keep myself awake till I can nap during the day sometime. All right, Tom. Okay. See, you know what? I, thank you. You know what I'm seeing here? And this shouldn't be a surprise, and it's not. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person, right? So you got to find what works for you. And my question really is, what does work for you? If you can get an hour's sleep, do you get it? How does that serve you? For me, since uh, Simone gave me this piece of advice, it served me pretty well, I think. I mean, again, there have been instances where I've overslept, but I think uh, I think it does help. Sometimes, especially if you can get a shower in, the the act of a nap and a shower, there is something kind of refreshing about that. Kind of, I don't know, fools your body, fools your brain into thinking you've had maybe not a full night's sleep, but gotten some sleep. 800-848-9222. Lori, a first-timer. From the state of North Carolina. Hello, Lori. Hi, how are you? Doing great, thank you. Okay. I'm weighing on this. Back in the day when I was young, and um, I've always been nocturnal. That's why I'm up talking to you now. Thankful. Um, we're, gra- we're grateful for it. Uh, I was I waitressed. And, I, you know, of course, I work late and we go out and party. I always found that if I tried to go to sleep, if I went to sleep, forget it. I was done. I'm not going to get back up. So I would just stay up all night and I'd just find something to do, occupy myself. And keep going until the next night. And then the next night, I would pass out. So, Lori, what is your kind of level at which you make that decision of staying up versus going to sleep? Do you say, it if I can't get two hours, like Gino said, then I'm staying up? Or is it a higher number if I can't get three hours or I can't get four hours? What is the magic number of hours that you would uh, need to get before you make the decision to go to sleep rather than stay awake? 
It, it would just depend what time, what time, how late it got. If it was like four or five, or maybe even close to six o'clock, I'd just say forget it. I'm going to stay up, have some coffee, hang out, keep myself occupied, and just keep going. Got it. You know. Got and it. then the next night, when I didn't go out late, I would get a really good night's sleep. But I've always been nocturnal and had a lot of energy. I mean, back in my younger days, I could stay up two, three nights in a row. Wow. And then I would just pass out. Wow. Well, that, oh, yeah. That's something. Um, thank, uh, thank you, Lori. I, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I've done that, you know, where you stay up all night, right? And I can't do it two days in a row. I mean, that's just – that's next level. Even I, um, who've done 33-hour talk shows, I've never done that. That's that's tough. I, I need to I need to reset and uh, chill out. Um Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rashid is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Rashid. Oh, hi, hi. How you doing, Frank? I'm doing all right, thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I stay up, man. You stay up. So, what's your magic number, Rashid? So, if you can't get what number of hours of sleep, do you make the decision to stay up? Uh, let me see. Like one hour. Okay, so your your minimum is you need an hour. Yeah. Oh, guarantee. Okay. Guarantee one hour. So yeah. if you can't get an hour, you're staying awake. Oh yes. Yeah, I have. To. Yeah, because like you said, I, if if I go if, if if I go to sleep, I'm gonna even with the alarm. Sometimes even with the loudest alarm, I'll sleep through it, and I'm and I'll wake up like did the alarm even come on at all? And you still find that um, you're able, if you can get an hour, then you don't oversleep. Yes. Guaranteed. All right. That's good. Thank you, Rashid. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. You know, Steve, I was thinking about you yesterday uh, because, you know, I was talking to Tom Tancredo about coming on the show. And you know what I was thinking about you is unlike so many of the people that end up calling this show – Whatever you have to say, even if you're off topic or you're, you know, whatever the case may be, you always have such a great phone line. You're always loud and clear, and I'm always able to understand exactly what you're saying, uh, no matter what the subject is. What what kind of phone do you have? What kind of phone line? What kind of phone service? Because that, to me, is a model for what every talk radio caller should be using. All right, first, well, let me get the line off. Life in the fast lane. You don't notice, Frank, but I'm actually in the studio with you. I'm disguised as somebody in there, and you don't know. I'm actually calling from in the studio. So that's why the line is clear. It's almost crystal clear, and you feel like I'm in there, and it's coming in great. That's it. what it is. Okay. That's helpful. But I, no, I would recommend people, if you call talk radio, uh, use a landline. I'm on a landline right now, and those are the best phones to use. And um, people, I know a lot of people don't have them anymore. But, you know, you, you, you're rolling the dice with a cell phone. When you oh, no, no, I, I agree. I agree. But even in my experience, there are people with landlines that don't sound like yours. That's why I was wondering if you had some sort of super-duper special landline or something. Right. But let's face it. Some people don't understand. Like, everybody in my building, when I call, I tell them to shut all the electronics off. I don't care. <laughs> Just shut everything off while I'm calling talk radio. <laughs> anyway, first of all, if it wasn't for the cocaine uh, – 
a catering, a clubhouse catering scandal, Keith Hernandez would not have been a Met. And keep in mind, Keith Hernandez was not driving an 18-wheel Mack truck down the Bruckner Expressway when he went to work, okay? He could easily turn to the manager and say, listen, uh, not today. Only Mickey Mantle comes off the bench drunk and hits 500-foot home runs. And uh, it's a, it depends on the people. I am what's called – I call myself a – I'm a natural night person, but you got to also be, I'm a high energy night person. Okay. It's different. I could get by with three hours sleep, four hours sleep. It doesn't bother me. And, and there are times when I could, if I want on a weekend or during whatever, I could sleep seven, eight hours. And to me, that's like long, but some people, that's what they say is just the natural amount that you should get every day. But as far as the, uh, the ball players are concerned, everything. Look, if you if you're drunk or anything, and you're playing Major League Baseball and you have a hangover, you're putting yourself at a tremendous competitive. Oh, sure, right. Well, or you in know, any other I, field, by the way, it's not right. limited to just athletics. No, I know that. I know, but anything physically. But I, I just tell people keep in mind that you uh, you just you know you just don't have the ability to be able to do the job that you normally can do from lack of sleep. And especially if it's alcohol involved, drugs involved, a lot of people do go to work that way. A lot of people become accustomed to coming to work that way, but they're not really doing anything that difficult. You got to keep that in mind. All right. Thank you, Steve. Uh, one last one here. And then we're going to talk to Tom Forkin about uh, what's going on in, uh, in Atlantic city, why all these uh, whales are uh, beaching themselves. Uh, let me say hello to, uh, let's see, Ed on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Oh, hi, Frank. Hi. Listen, um, you know, regarding your uh, transition from an interview with Anthony Weiner to a discussion about pornography, I, I, I question your judgment on that topic. I mean, right. I think it was a distraction. I You said before the break, if anybody has a comment about the – interview with Anthony Weiner, please feel free to call. And then you went on a half an hour tirade about this. Uh... Well, I don't know that I would characterize it as a tirade. I would call it as a, a very reasonable, intelligent discussion. Let me, see, let me ask you an honest question. You have a one-year-old son, right, Dominic? You know, I hope he's feeling better. I know he was under the weather. Yeah, Carmine. But, uh, yes, but... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Carmine. You know, when you lay your head on the pillow, do you think, oh, my God, he's going to get up and go on the computer and look at uh, inappropriate images? Well, not no, at one, not. because he doesn't use a computer. Yeah, exactly. So why is that on the forefront of your mind? It's a distraction. Well, because Louisiana just implemented this law, and it struck me yeah, as a pretty good idea. Yeah, but you had a former idea. congressman who sent inappropriate images to underage kids, which is worse. A he went to prison for that, and uh, as he should have, right? You uh, disseminate uh, obscene material to a minor, you go to prison. And uh, I'm not saying he shouldn't have. I'm glad he did. You think he's going to change? I have no idea. But I could tell you what, if he does do that again with another minor, he'll go back to prison, right? Uh, so I suspect he's not eager to go back to prison. And uh, uh, based on what I've heard, and thanks for the call, Ed, and uh, the very you know well-reasoned way in which you expressed your point of view. Uh, but um, my understanding, and I don't know what goes on in Anthony Weiner's head, uh, but uh, I think that he has uh, gotten counseling and uh, a lot of uh, different services over the years that um, have helped him battle through uh, his issues. Uh, but I have no idea, honestly. I don't know him that well. 
But uh, I know that he's worked hard at this, and, um, you know, uh, that's that. I, I was having him on not to talk about addiction issues or uh, child pornography or anything. I was having him on to talk about his time in Congress and his perspective on what's going on in Congress now. So there's that. All right. Uh, Tom Forkin is going to join us next. Why are so many whales washing up on the Jersey Shore? What's going on? We'll talk about that. And what is it about Atlantic City that they still can't seem to manage having a supermarket? We'll explore that as well. Tom Forkin joins us in the AC Report straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. to look at one of the most interesting communities in the world. Uh, They say it's only 48 blocks, and in that 48 blocks, it packs quite a punch. I'll tell you, one of the people that I have most enjoyed getting to know over the last couple of years in terms of covering Atlantic City, commenting on it, visiting Atlantic City, and uh, hosting parties there, etc., has been Tom Forkin. Tom Forkin is a, a fascinating guy. He was an attorney who became a surfing instructor and has opened up Atlantic City's most successful surf school. He was not just a Democrat, but he was the chairman of the Democratic Party locally. And then he went on to run for uh, mayor of uh, Atlantic City as a Republican. He's also somebody that was a naval veteran and was on the board of directors for the Surfers Environmental Alliance. And uh, he is someone that uh, I think is well-suited to offer his take as to why so many whales seem to be washing up on the beaches of Atlantic City of late. Tom, it's great to talk with you. It's great. I'm, I really appreciate you coming to the New Year's Eve Eve party. I know that uh, you and your wife were doing something in New York, of all places, and you made the trip back to make the party, and it wouldn't have been the same without you, both of you. Frank, how are you? It was, it was always a pleasure to see you and the missus. How's everything going? Everything's going great. Uh, so Good. catch our listeners up if they haven't uh, heard about this uh, yet. I, in the last month, 
at least two whales, humpback whales, have washed up on the beach of Atlantic City. And both of them obviously were dead. What do we know about the this situation here, Tom? Well, I mean, you know, what's happening, it's not just, you know, two whales. It's just two whales in Atlantic City. But there was a whale up in Monmouth County. Um, there was also a whale down in Cape May County. And of all places, at a place called Whale Beach. Um, and then there was, uh, I believe, one or two on Long Island. So, you know, there's like a total of six whales that have washed up on the beach dead uh, over the last uh, 33 days. So, you know, we've requested an investigation when I say we, you know, the surfing community, uh, because we spend our time in the ocean. And, um, you know, we need a healthy ocean. We need a healthy tourism industry. You know, and if, and if this continues, I mean, it's going to be problematic, you know, throughout the summer. I mean, our theory of what's happening here, and, and I know Cindy Ziff from uh, Clean Ocean Action has gotten involved. That's a, another environmental group that we collaborate with. Surfers Environmental Alliance, as you know, is, um, you know, it's uh, the acronym is C S E A. Uh, we operate and run or ran. I, I, when I was involved with the board, we had the around the Manhattan paddle, the sea paddle, in which we'd raise over, you know, half a million dollars annually for various environmental causes, um, you know, in New York and New Jersey, uh, because we have them. And, and what this is, you know, our uh, take on this is that this is stemming from the sonar mapping that's going on for these windmill farms. And, you know, green energy just isn't as green as everybody would like to think. You know, I mean, they're going to put these windmills out. It's going to be great. We won't need, you know, natural gas or coal or other uh, carbon uh, sources for electricity and fuel and so forth. But, you know, this is this is becoming problematic in the sense that, you know, they're out there mapping with sonar. And if anybody does any basic research on, you know, sonar blasting uh, for mapping purposes and so forth, you know, it's going to disrupt the marine environment. And what's going on is, is that sonar for dolphins and whales, because they depend depend on their sonar, you know, to know where they're going and, and, and to feed and find fish and so forth, you know, is it, it, kill, it kills marine mammals. I mean, that's just the fact. It's been researched. People can look it up and you know, it's um, we've asked for a, a federal investigation of this uh, to see exactly what's going on. And maybe uh, the people that are doing this mapping can use more prudence in the methodology in which they're they're mapping the ocean floor to run these heavy cables that run out to the windmills. You know, people are protesting the windmills, obviously, because the windmills construction, aside from the sonar uh, mapping that's killing the whales, um, you know, also, it's going to severely injure um, the fishing industry, you know, in and around Atlantic City, South Jersey. I mean, Atlantic City is one of, I don't know if you knew this, but, you know, is one of the largest clamming ports on the East Coast. I mean, we have a, you know, a very industrious fishing industry in addition to our tourism industry. So, you know, it doesn't take rocket scientists to figure out once you start dropping uh, these massive windmills. Uh, five to 10 miles offshore, not only are they going to be an eyesore, you know, but they're also going to disrupt the ocean environment, disturb the fishing industry and shipping lanes and so forth. So it's, uh, 
you know, it's an interesting dynamic, Frank, to say the least. And, um, you know, they kind of did an end run around the community because everybody says, oh, we all, everybody wants to go green. We want to help the environment. But, you know, look at what they do with the electric cars, you know, they for the batteries, for the electric cars, they have to strip mine and, and find the material to make the batteries. It's, well, uh, you yeah, know, let's let's hold off on the electric car discussion for, for a second there. And pe- people yeah. just tuning in, we're talking with Tom Forkin. Um, so w- what you're saying is, and I've heard other people raise this as well, that uh, there's a strong possibility that the wind farms, the offshore windmills, which are supposedly providing green energy to, you know, the people on land, that that is screwing up the marine life in the ocean and it's disrupting kind of the uh, method that uh, whales use to navigate in the ocean and it's causing them to beach themselves. Is that pretty much it? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. But it's it's also you know and the construction, it, and it, well, and the construction. But the construction hasn't started yet. Before they do any construction, they have to have a you know viable mapping of the ocean floor in which to you know to lay the cable and any other uh, you know deep sea or under the sea instructions uh, obstructions. <laughs> excuse me for you know for laying the cable and and putting in the foundation for these windmills which by the way are about you know how big the ocean casino is right these these windmills each windmill is about as tall and and almost as wide as the ocean casino wow these are not these are not like little pixels that you're putting out to sea that are maybe 10 or 15 feet tall these are massive uh you know windmills i mean and still they haven't come out with how much it's going to offset or what it puts on the grid in terms of electricity. I mean, we have windmills, as you know, in Atlantic City. And let me tell you something. Our electric bill hasn't gone down. It's gone up. (laughs) So we have uh, windmills down uh, by the ACUA, the Atlantic County Utilities Authority, uh, out by the sewage treatment plant. And, you know, what, what, about a half dozen windmills there, and they haven't done anything. I mean, they, they look nice. It makes you feel good to see them operating. But, you know, what do they do? I mean, other than look nice, do they really, you know, where's the intel on, you know, the wattage, you know, that that puts out? It's uh, especially when it, you have a high wind nor'easter or, you know, like a hurricane that blows through. These things spin around and create all this electricity. It's just the numbers. There's no transparency there. Right. I mean, but on the on the ocean issue, Tom, um, yeah. if, if how long have uh, there been offshore wind farms or offshore windmills? in the Jersey Shore area and in that time, ballpark, I'm not asking you exactly about, in that time, have we seen an uptick in the number of whales beaching themselves on the Jersey Shore? Well, we don't We don't have any windmills here <laughs> offshore. There are no offshore windmills. This is, this is a, a case of first impression, and it looks awful suspicious that suddenly, you know, you have this preparation for these windmills, and suddenly have all these marine mammals, you know, dying at sea. They're not beaching themselves. They're just washing up. I mean, there may be more whales out at sea that haven't beached themselves, um, you know, but they're not beaching themselves. I mean, when a whale beaches himself, I mean, they're still alive. They're coming, you know, to shore, to die or whatever. But these whales, you know, have already uh, died and they're just washing up dead. And, And, you know, I hear some people make the argument, well, they're hit by ships. Uh, and that's what killed him. It's like, well, 
you don't know that. I mean, obviously, if they're, you know, they're dead, they're floating, and they get hit by a boat or a clam boat or a ship, for that matter. I mean, what's the probability of a live whale with viable, you know, sonar capabilities of its own, you know, running into a ship? I mean, <laughs> you know, what's the, what are the chances? I'm not an actuary, but I don't think they're, the chances are very good um, because, you know, the shipping lanes are what they are, and, and, and we have whales in the ocean. Obviously, that's where they live, but to have that many whales wash up, I mean, if this gets worse, like, say, when the dolphins migrate back, you know, from down south, you know, you'll have – there's still pods of dolphins here, but, you know, there's a massive uh, dolphin pod uh, off of Brigantine. You know, we have the dolphin watches with the cruising one. People go out, they enjoy the dolphins, a big chunk of our industry here. It's a tourist industry. If we have – Whales and dolphins, you know, aside from the morality of it and looking at, you know, the right thing to do, which would be to couch uh, whatever marine exploration are doing with the sonar, maybe couch it a little bit more effectively because, you know, they're jamming this wind farm down our throat. I mean, it's well, a done deal. So, I mean, Tom, I guess I'm a little unclear then, right? So if there yeah. is no uh, offshore windmill at this point, yeah. Um, what is the sonar from that you are theorizing is causing these whales to die? Well, the, the sonar itself is by the companies that are mapping the ocean floor to start windmill construction, which may start as early, you know, as either later this summer or early this upcoming fall. I see. I see. So even though there's no windmill, they're shooting the, the, the sonar to map where the wind farm will be. I see. Okay, gotcha. All right. Hey, uh, before we run out of time, Tom, e- about a year ago, we spoke uh, right after it was announced that Atlantic City was getting a Shoprite. This huge deal with the CRDA and Shoprite to launch a grocery, a supermarket in Atlantic City. And I asked you, "Is this great? Is this good news? Are you excited about this?" And you basically said, "Yeah, we'll see if it comes to fruition." Lo and behold. Two weeks ago, it looks like uh, this project is dead. They're not going to have a supermarket. How can a city like Atlantic City with $2 billion in gambling revenue alone and all these tourists uh, and everything going on there and all this state aid, how can uh, a city like Atlantic City not even manage to get a supermarket? Well, you know, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've had one in the past. It pulled out. Uh, because of the high crime rate. I mean, Atlantic City is a very condensed area, as you know. We, we, you know, it is 48 blocks. We only have a population of, say, 40,000 people, um, and that fluctuates between 40, 45,000. You know, that wouldn't even be a neighborhood in New York City. It wouldn't even be a neighborhood in in Philadelphia. But you know, our our city is unique in the extent that it has very diverse demographic. Uh, residing there. Um, and, you know, my theory was, hey, look, you know, they can they can chirp about this all they want. But, you know, in the past, it's been the crime issue, shoplifting and so forth, that ShopRite, which was the company that was going to come in, you know, we have several ShopRites in the area. You know, one's in Upsecon. You have an Acme across the bridge in Brigantine. You have another shopping center right on the borderline of Atlantic City and, and uh, Ventnor, so you do have shop rights, you know, around and, and other supermarkets like Acme around um, and, and Atlantic City residents can easily access those by buses, by cars. You know, do we really need one in Atlantic City? Because my theory was early on, hey, look, you have a lot of mom and pop stores there, uh, very small ethnic 
uh, shops that sell food products. I mean, you know, everybody wants to say it's a food desert. It's anything but a food desert in the sense that, you know, what's going to happen to those small mom and pop shops on the corners, you know, the bodegas where people depend on small shops to sustain their family. I mean, look what happened, you know, with big shops like Walmart or, or Costco or Home Depot come in. I mean, you know, hardware stores, family hardware stores in Atlantic City, that we, we don't have a hardware store in Atlantic mm. City. I mean, walk around, you know, walk around Atlantic City and look for a hardware store. You used to have various hardware stores in Atlantic City where you could buy, you know, construction products and so forth. You can't you can't do that now. You have to drive out to Epsecon to go to um, Home Depot or <clears throat> one of the other big box shops offshore. I mean, these big box shops like you know big supermarkets and so forth are putting the smaller guy out of business. Now I've always been for the smaller guy. And gal, and um, you know, I don't know if we really need a supermarket in Atlantic City. Everybody likes to make a political political football out of it, but you know, and that's one of the great things about Atlantic City. You have that diverse ethnic, you know, feel when you, you know, when you go around Atlantic City. If you want Vietnamese food, we have Vietnamese restaurants, or we have Chinese restaurants. We have great Italian restaurants, as you know. We have Angelo's, which is a staple. We have uh, Chef Volas. We have Cafe. Uh, what is it? Twenty eight, twenty four. I mean, we 28, have twenty eight, twenty five, right? You know, twenty eight, twenty five. I'm, I'm, I'm blocked down. And, yeah. But it, you know, it, it. We have some fabulous places at Knife and Fork, Doherty's. I mean, even it, and those are outside of the sure. casinos. I try to patronize the places, you know, outside of the casinos because it supports our, you know, local small businesses. Right. And, no, same and, here. Same here. And, and, uh, yeah. Uh, Tom, I, I got to run. I appreciate the time this morning. Appreciate you getting up early. Let's do this again oh, soon. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, man. I'm on my way to the gym shortly, so I will see you hopefully soon, man. You and the missus have to come down for the boat, man. We absolutely. Go the boat. Absolutely. Count on it. You just try and stop right. us. Thank you, Tom. Please give, please give her and Carmine our best. Uh, absolutely. Certainly will. Thank you very much, Tom Forkin. Uh, check out, hey, if, you're, if you're ever in uh, Atlantic City, check out the uh, Atlantic City Surf School. Uh, it is the uh, the best. I've, I haven't surfed there yet, but from what I'm told, it's the best, uh, it, best surf school in Atlantic City. Check it out. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Questions, comments, thoughts—you name it. Eight open lines. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf, surf. With I got up this morning, turned on my radio. I was checking out the surfing scene to see if I would go. And when the DJ tells me that the surfing is fine, that's when I know my baby and I will have a good time. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, this is uh, the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, uh, you can go ahead and uh, just join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, And it's a fun group. A fun group. Uh, Right now, um, some people are uh, giving me a hard time because um, we didn't have a conservative Republican in the first hour as part of that panel. 
Let me tell you, I tried. Uh, we had on uh, Bob. We had Bob Dornan confirmed, and then Bob Dornan uh, realized last minute he had a family oblig- obligation and wasn't going to be able to make it. And then we were able to scramble. And you had to see this list of congressmen, former Republican congressmen. I went through lengthy, lengthy. And um, then we replaced Bob Dornan with Tom Tancredo. And I said, that's great. Love Tom Tancredo. He's a a populist style Tea Party conservative. Before that was cool. And then uh, I don't know if uh, there was some signals crossed in terms of uh, the time zone or the AM PM or whatever the case may be. But uh, we tried to reach him valiantly. And um, we, uh, you know, weren't able to get a hold of him. But my favorite comment on that front is um, this fellow Daniel said, uh, Frank Morano is what his buddy Nicole Maliotakis is, a rhino. Now, rhino is an acronym for Republican in name only. Now, I'm not a Republican. So how can I be a Republican in name only when it's not in my name? And I got to give Dan credit because he he came up with the best retort to this. He said, what I am is a rhino, R-H-I-N-O. Radio host in name only. Now, that's funny. That is quite funny. I really do enjoy that. That's very funny. All right, 800-848-9222. Brian Kilmeade uh, joining me next hour. That's 800-848-9222. Let me squeeze in a call here from uh, Jacqueline in Queens. Hello there, Jacqueline. What is on your mind? Am I on now? Uh, yes, Jacqueline, yes. Look, man has destroyed everything it touches. It has destroyed the oceans to the point where the animals don't want to live anymore in the pollution and what we're doing to the planet Earth. The other thing I want to say, we killed 920,000 animals last year and 1.3 million are in need. Why doesn't this country have a birth control abortion? Jacqueline, thank you. Thank you. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Hey, uh, we're still getting a lot of uh, great feedback, uh, positive, overwhelmingly, from the interview that we did with William Shatner a couple of days ago and uh, from the offer that uh, William Shatner extended to me on the air to join him on stage, which I hope comes to fruition. But honestly, it would be such a cool thing that uh, I can't imagine it will come to fruition. Uh, it's just, it's, it'd be like winning the lottery, right? So we all know that uh, winning the lottery is pretty rare. Uh, so Talkers, the premier industry publication for the talk radio business, they their lead item yesterday, and it's on Talkers.com now if you want to see it, 
Their lead item yesterday was all about this interview that I did with William Shatner in which we discussed the art of uh, interviewing. So you, I posted this. You could see it on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. I posted the article up there. There's a difference between the Facebook page and the Facebook group. The group is meant to be an interactive forum for listeners to connect with one another, argue with one another politely, and uh, offer their feedback on the show, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and uh, kind of continue the show and uh, do their thing there. That's the Facebook group versus the Facebook page. So if you want to read the Sh- the Shatner interview, go to facebook.com slash Fan. But, um, for instance, if you go to the Facebook group, one of the best posts that I saw there yesterday was from Dan, who writes this. I am a true fan of Frank Morano and the Other Side of Midnight program. But I must say, this Facebook group might be even better. Between the name-dropping, self-promotion, off-topic comments, it's just beyond the beyond. Can't make this stuff up. My only request is that it's lacking a bit of sexual innuendo. Well said, Dan. Thank you. And, yeah, a lot of people have told me that the only reason they still keep Facebook is so that they can join this group. So if you want to see what you're missing, you can go to Facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano and join it. But I got an SMS text message from my friend Brian Goldstein after that Talkers Magazine article was uh, posted. And he wrote to me yesterday. Yesterday was January 11th, Victoria Gotti's birthday, by the way. I'm still working on getting that uh, latest Racket Report podcast up. If you want to check that out, by the way, uh, we got to look at the uh, podcast numbers, and we're doing real well with that Racket Report podcast. But please just go to iTunes and hit the subscribe button, or you can go to uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. But he writes me this, Happy New Year. Not too late, right? Question mark. Great Shatner interview. Hope you can host the Q&A in New Jersey. And then he has other other comments. And Brian's a good friend of mine. We go way back. He's been up here. He visited us at the station. The first sentence I found so interesting. Happy New Year. Not too late, right? It's January 11th. He makes that comment. Now, I don't believe it is too late. My view is... You get the whole month of January to say Happy New Year. The first time you interact with someone. If you, if I interact with you on January 3rd, that's my opportunity to say Happy New Year. If I see you then again five days later, you don't get a new Happy New Year. You're done. You're covered for the year. That's my view. That's the Morano method. In fact, let me write that down. i got to make sure that's actually in the Morano method. That's my view. Someone who disagrees is Larry David. Larry David, from the TV program Curb Your Enthusiasm, in which he plays sort of a a fictionalized version of himself, he has a a very different view of when it's okay to say Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Eh, It's a little late, frankly, for the Happy New Year, you know? Why? Just happened a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's too long. Uh, Statute of limitations is kind of run out on the New Year. Three days. Three days... No. He says it's three days. I disagree. Now, clearly this is a subject that's of great interest to Larry David because the show that he first became known for, the show that he made a lot of money with, Seinfeld, which he co-wrote with Jerry Seinfeld, they covered this subject. I don't remember which episode this was from, but it was early on in the series. And this created a big stir at the time 
that Jerry and Elaine, in a conversation that I imagine was scripted at least in part by Larry David, Jerry and Elaine on the TV program Seinfeld had this conversation. Hey, do you believe I got Happy New Year today? It's February. I once got Happy New Year in March. <laughs> it's pathetic. They say February's too late, March is too late. They don't necessarily give a specific statute of limitations. The question I have for you is very simple at 800-848-9222. At what point is it too late to say Happy New Year? What is the Happy New Year window? What is your statute of limitations? The Murano method is very simple. 30 days. First interaction only. Doesn't matter if it's email, doesn't matter if it's text, phone, or in person. First interaction of the new year, month of January only. February 1st comes around, it's too late. And that's what I would say to Brian Goldstein. Larry David is three days. Um, Jerry and Elaine, not exactly clear. They're more expressing consternation at the fact that they're getting Happy New year so late in the year. I don't know. But... Um, We'll see. We'll see what happens with the Shatner thing as well. I told uh, I told my wife yesterday, you know, Shatner lives in California, and uh, it was interesting hearing him talk about that discussion that he had with Rush Limbaugh and how Rush Limbaugh g- came to his house for Monday Night Football. And I said to my wife yesterday, if she, Shatner and I really hit it off, you know, here, and he invites me over to his house for Monday Night Football next season – I said, I have to go. And she said, I absolutely understand that. Go ahead and uh, do your thing. I won't won't stand in your way. But we are uh, approaching the football playoffs now, the NFL playoffs. And um, last year we had a, uh, you know, a big party, right? Um, And a whole bunch of people, uh, television, and we don't have a big TV, but we we put, we have a regular sized television in one room. And we took a television that's in our bedroom and put it in a bar room so that wherever you went, you had a television to watch. If you were in the bar room or you were in the uh, the living room, you still had a television to see the Super Bowl. But my wife was annoyed because we invited all sorts of people. And I don't want to be I don't want to be sexist here, but this is just the fact of the matter. A lot of the women that came, they came to socialize. Right. They didn't come to pay any attention to the game. So they all end up talking to my wife and distracting her because, you know, she doesn't want to be rude. And she has a uh, at that time he was five or six month old. They all want to hold the baby. They want to interact with the baby, talk to her about baby related issues. And she didn't get to watch any of the game. So this year she said, all right, if we're going to have a Super Bowl party again this year, that's fine. You know, let's try and have it a semi-reasonable number of people. But it has to be people that are there to watch and enjoy the game. I don't want to have all these. And this, my wife said this to me. And I hope she's not listening at this point in the show because usually she doesn't make it to the, this hour unless, you know, she's up, up live for some reason. But she said, I hate to say this, but unless it's a woman that you know is going to want to watch the game, no women. Don't invite any of these women to the Super Bowl party because they're all going to try and talk to me and I want to watch the game. So obviously I will adhere to whatever she wants to do. But it got me thinking. Um, now, that's the weekend of these Shatner showings in New Jersey. So I think we're still going to go forward with a, you know, some 
sort of a, a Super Bowl gathering, maybe just people in the neighborhood or something. But um, I got an email here from someone, a chef actually, who has created a line of recipes specifically designed for the playoffs, a special type of Bloody Mary, special type of cheese dip, special type of uh, sausage dip, an eight-layer vegetarian taco dip. And a lot of these recipes look pretty interesting. And my wife is a vegetarian, so I thought maybe we'll try a couple of these vegetarian recipes at the Super Bowl party. And it got me thinking about what the successful key is to a Super Bowl party or keys, right? In our experience, clearly it's not having people that are going to distract the folks that want to watch the game from attending. And um, in the eyes of this um, this chef that sent me this email, I mean, he was trying to get booked on the show, and maybe we'll have him, who knows. But in the eyes of this chef that, uh, that sent me this email, it's all dependent upon the food. And that was the other thing my wife warned me about. Last year at the Super Bowl, I think we ordered from five or six different pizzerias. And she said, I will be, meaning her, she said, I will be in charge of ordering the food this year because I don't want you ordering from five different pizza shops. And that that's an issue that I'm still going to fight back on because I feel like people do like trying all these different pizza shops and what this place does, what that place does, the house specialty here, house specialty there. But that is kind of the second question that I have for you, which is... What is the key to a successful Super Bowl party in your experience? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So if you want to tackle either of those questions, how late is too late to wish someone a Happy New Year? And what is the uh, optimal recipe for a successful Super Bowl bash? 800-848-9222. But you can comment on uh, any other issue that we've been covering as well. Meantime, let me say hello to Pamela in New Jersey, who's been patiently holding. Hello, Pamela. Oh, hello. And Happy New Year. Ha ha ha. I don't mind I say the, Sure. I say, I say the second. After the second, that's it. You know, it gets annoying. That's early. Anyway. O- only the second. Okay. Well, yeah, it's kind of like... You know, some people still have their their Christmas lights on and it's kind of, you know, I don't know, it's annoying. (laughs) But anyway, um, uh, about the windmills, um, not only does the sonar um, mess up their their uh, the mammal's sonar, but then you have the demolition. You know, they have to plant that in, you know, the, you know, stone and demolition. Then you have once the windmills are up, not only are they ugly, but they kill thousands of birds. So hmm, let's see. Are we really thinking of the environment? Well, yeah. I mean, that's uh, Tom. He didn't mention the birds uh, point, but he mentioned the same thing about the construction. And it's funny. Um, I spoke with Donald Trump about this years ago, long before he was president, privately about wind energy and uh, that whole thing, because he had a lot of experience in Atlantic City. And he was one of the first persons that I heard uh, talk about the dangers to uh, to the birds of wind energy. So it's a it's a fair point, right? Everything is a give and take ecologically. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Patrick is in Huntington. Hello, Patrick. Good morning, Frank, and Happy New Year. I concur, but maybe uh, maybe the middle of the month, January 15th. So that's your cutoff, January 15th. Yeah, that's where it seems like comfortable. After that, it's a little, I think, a little odd for me. Okay. But, uh, All right. Getting back to the supermarkets, we we know that's razor thin margins on the supermarket business, but 
if you were going to be the only supermarket in town, I think the expert to ask a question on this, and he may be listening, is Mr. Casamitidis. Why? Why is so many why is so many companies balking not putting one in there? So I think maybe John would be a perfect uh, guest on that subject. Well, it is interesting, and I know John is probably listening. He's always listening. But uh, I was actually after our discussion last week about this, I was actually going to uh, raise this with him. Uh, but uh, the reason that apparently Shoprite pulled out and they were given this property, a beautiful piece of property for free, is that there was some concern about uh, security and shop and uh, shoplifting. Uh, and they wanted money from the CRDA to insure against against theft, and they were not going to go uh, put up this supermarket there unless there was uh, some sort of an insurance policy. But now, as I understand it, uh, they're 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 looking to make a deal with another grocery chain to put a supermarket there. So we'll see what happens. I hope so because uh, you know, hearing Tom's perspective was interesting about how. Maybe a supermarket is not the big deal that people make it out to be. But a lot of the other residents that I've talked to, they'd really like a supermarket. They don't want to have to go to Absecon or uh, or Ventnor or Margate to get all their groceries. So I hope for the residents that uh, that want one that, that they have that as an option. There's a lot of great places to get food you in know, Atlantic City, but it, it, I think may, they would do well with a supermarket. There's got to be like five or six supermarkets within a three-mile radius. You know, it's just it's hard to fathom that people have to shop at bodegas and stuff. It's just it's just so uh, expensive for them. Yeah. You know? No, no, no. That's exactly right. Or go out of town. Right. Which, uh, especially yeah. if you don't have a car, it's not an easy thing to do. Thank you, Patrick. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes. Good morning. Uh, perfect Super Bowl recipe is to have a house pool. Make it a five five dollars, five dollars a box. So at least, you know, nothing crazy. At least everybody has an interest in the game because they can win some money. You know, that is a great thought, Lou. And yeah, I, I, cool. I'm not talking 20, 50 bottles, you know, a box. Yeah, uh, no, well, one of the first. To the bars. Right. One of the first things that I did gambling wise ever was when I was about seven or eight, my dad used to throw, first my Uncle Joe, and then my dad used to throw a big Super Bowl party, and they'd put me in charge of the pool when I was seven or eight years old, and I would do it only for a quarter a box. You know, I mean, I was an eight, eight years old, so yeah, for me, right, it was a I big know, thing. Yeah. But um, uh, hey, you really... open your kid out. Exactly, right, exactly. But um, uh, one of the mistakes that I made last year is I tried to get a pool going and try to sell all the boxes right before the game, like 15 minutes before the game. And it turned out to be a big, big mistake because then I was so stressed trying to sell all these boxes. Sell get rid of the boxes, yeah. And yeah. then I think I ended up buying a whole bunch of them and or needing to subsidize the winner myself. So I agree with your suggestion, but the only thing that I'd add to that is give yourself at least an hour before the game. I was going to say, the people have to show up an hour before the kickoff to get into the pool. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I think that's... Gonna- that's the way to nuts. do it. That's the way to do it. Lou, thank you. What are you doing for the Super uh, Bowl this you. year? Uh, I don't know yet. I don't have any plans yet. I'm not quite sure. All right. Well, thank you. If you do, so, if you have a party, invite me. Maybe, maybe I'll come to your party instead of uh, dealing with all these new restrictions that we have at our house. I mean, only one pizza shop, and not inviting a hundred people. You know, no women. I mean, what is this? This is just crazy. This is how cavemen watch the Super Bowl. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Bob is in Yonkers. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Frank. Morning. That was a great interview. That was a great interview you did with the gentleman about the whales. 
Thank you. Yeah, Tom Forkin, a smart guy, isn't he? My question is, why, why didn't the, the mapping of the, uh, the ocean floor stop until they're sure what's going on? Uh, r- repeat that. Repeat the question exactly. Why didn't they stop all solar testing until they're sure that it's not affecting the whales? Well, it's a great question. I don't know. And and to his credit, you know, Tom and some of these other activists down there, they're asking for a federal investigation. Now, there was one article that I read about this in which a marine biologist says uh, essentially that they're wrong, that he doesn't believe this theory, that uh, that anything having to do with sonar or the wind uh, wind farms or the future wind farms has anything to do with these whales. But I, I, I think... We have more questions than answers. I mean, some people have said it's due to an increase in the whale population. Uh, some people have said it's due to warmer waters closer to the coast and uh, whales are more likely to swim closer than they used to be. I don't know, uh, but I think it's certainly worth exploring. Thank you uh, very much there, Bob. 800-848-9222. Joe is in the state of New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, big guy. Good morning. What's going hey, on? Hey, uh, just wanted to talk about the uh, supermarket issue. You talked about the shop late. Uh, they're not committing to that ground. The thing is, and my business, I am in the supermarket business. But I got to tell you that the a lot of these stores now, they're fortresses. Uh, the demographics, the neighborhoods have changed. And the amount of pilfering, outright stealing uh, it, it's it's terrible. I mean, it really is. Security is a huge issue today. Yeah, I, I get that. And, you know, I've heard that from uh, not only John Katsimatidis, who owns several supermarkets, but a bunch of other people in the grocery business. The thing that I don't understand is it's not like um, it's not like ShopRite didn't know that when they agreed to this. So when they agreed to put this supermarket there, Uh, and get a very good deal from the CRDA and essentially get the land for free. Why did they agree to that if they knew that there were going to be these kinds of security concerns? It seems like they sort of reneged on their word to the community and to the CRDA. You know what? uh, And it's probably uh, at the time they agreed, uh, they hadn't done the research, the total research necessary. When they did the research on the environment in there, uh, you know, that's when uh, they, and they did. They reneged on the deal, uh, which is, is terrible, but it's understandable. I mean, the big thing is the people that work in these stores, they're really victims because uh, they're trying to protect the interests of the owners and do the right thing. And these people come in, they have no regard for right or wrong. And, you know, it's it's bad enough to have it stolen but it's worse, I think, to have to watch it. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that's fair, Joe. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Christine is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Christine. Well, hello. How are you? Doing great. Thank you, Christine. Um, I said Happy New Year to somebody at um, Sam's Club today, and they just kind of like sneered at me. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think. January is a good time to say Happy New Year. What about you? Well, I, I mean, I've given my approach, right? Uh, mine is, uh, I think, for the month, you get the whole month of January as long as it's your first interaction. After your first interaction, then I think I think you're done. But as far as the, the, the first time you interact with someone, as long as it's in the month of January, I think that is uh, that is just fine. 
So when you say the person at Sam's Club sneered at you, did they say anything as to why they weren't reciprocating the Happy New Year? No. Well, that's disappointing. But also, I think, okay, let's get on to the Super Bowl thing or the um, um, the whole NFL. Um, when they take a knee because they don't like something, I think it's better to take a knee for when you do like something. Yeah, well, a lot of people have raised that, right? I mean, that's kind of what a lot of people do when they pray, is they pray on their knees. So to think that you do the same action when you're uh, when you're praying as you do when you're protesting something, it hasn't always made sense to a, a lot of people. That's a, that's a fair point, and that's probably one that's above my pay grade, Christine. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Matt is on Long Island. Hello, Matt. Yeah, hey, Frank. How are you? Doing okay there, Matt. Thanks. Okay, yeah, I've, I've called in a couple times, and I and I appreciate uh, taking the call. And uh, I know you're on late at night, but these uh, the, these windmill installations and operations are um, they just it, it it is it's against. It's against everything that, and you said it before on your program, against the environment. So, how does that happen? Matt definitely if, strikes me as you know, a guy the legislature that stays up the, all night instead of taking a 20-minute nap. Everybody else says, yeah, okay, we're going to approve this. H- how does that get how does that go forward or get reversed? Well, Matt, I don't know, uh, honestly, right? And uh, maybe one day, thank you, Matt, maybe one day we'll do a whole series of uh, energy shows, right? Because uh, there's a lot of people that are that are uh, interested in learning about nuclear energy, for instance. A lot of people who are concerned with uh, fossil fuels that do want to pursue renewable energy, solar, wind, uh, biomass, things of that nature, right? So I, I don't know that there's any energy that's a perfect system, uh, but uh, it's something that uh, there's a lot of room to talk about, that's for sure. So uh, I think we'll uh, – I'm going to work on that. I'll work on that over the weekend, planning maybe one energy hour per week where we have a look at uh, the pluses and the minuses of all these different energy technologies. Because on the nuclear front, one of the things that we're seeing is – Some places that were moving away from nuclear energy, uh, places like uh, Germany and France, they're doubling down on nuclear energy at this point, or they're trying to move backwards uh, to where they were 15 or 20 years ago after moving away from nuclear energy. Japan, there's a lot of problems there because Japan, as I understand it, was up to 20 percent of the country was powered by nuclear power plants. After the Fukushima nuclear disaster, now only 9% of the country is powered by nuclear. So a lot of the other uh, a lot of the expertise that was helping run these nuclear power plants, they've left the country of Japan. They're gone elsewhere. So um and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of positives to wind energy as well, but uh, a lot of the concerns that people are raising Certainly causes gives me some pause, right? Uh, I don't know about you. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade in a couple of minutes, uh, but first we're going to actually going to give you an opportunity to win one thousand dollars if you are the seventh caller to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to let you play the thousand dollar minute where we give you an opportunity to answer ten trivia questions 
in 60 seconds. And if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, simple as that, you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. Go ahead and be the seventh caller right now, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello quickly to Brian in Virginia. Brian, when is it too late to wish someone a happy new year? Frank, I can go with the Murano rule. I think that's uh, creative and appropriate. Well, thank what you. I want to say is, what I want to say is, let's ban all the see you next year stuff in the week preceding the new year. Let's just get rid of that. Yeah, can we do that? I, I, you know, I get it, Brian. Right, but. What's the harm? People are trying to have some fun and be a little clever. If it does, uh, if it does, and thank you, Brian. Your phone's a little weird there. If you're, if it, it doesn't do anybody in any harm, and they want to say on December twenty eighth, see you next year. What's the harm, right? It doesn't hurt anybody. It's fun and no big deal. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Seventh caller to that number will get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Then we'll talk with Brian Kilmeade about uh, some of the news of the day, and he'll get his take on where he sees the football playoffs going. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Tramp. What you call me? Tramp. Well, you, did. you don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I'll tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm a liar. Singing Tramp. All right. Uh, without further ado, let us give some lucky person an opportunity to win some money, shall we? It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moran. All right, let us say hello to Jack on Long Island. Hello there, Jack. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Jack, you are not uh, State Senator Jack Martins, who they're talking about replacing George Santos, are you? No, I'm not. All right, you're still eligible to play. It's fine if you are. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, uh, You've heard this segment before, I imagine, Jack. Yes, I have. All right, you, you know the rules. You know what to do. Tell Kenneth to get out a booby prize. Okay, got it. All right. Well, no, you want to have some uh, self confidence, Jack. You got to believe in yourself. Okay, all, all right. right. You ready to go? Ready. All right. What is the primary ingredient in peanut butter? Peanut. In the nursery rhyme, who sat on a wall before having a great fall? Humpty Dumpty. What is a country that begins with the letter D? Denmark. Who wrote the Harry Potter series of books? Rollins. What is the largest planet in our solar system? Jupiter. What is the square root of nine? Three. In what year did the Berlin Wall fall? 89. What is the chemical symbol for potassium? Oh... Uh... M-A? 
Ah, no, I'm sorry. You were doing great. It's K. Uh, it's uh, potassium is K. Uh, you did very well, though, Jack, and uh, you shouldn't have been doubting yourself because you did better than a lot of people have done of late. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, Kenneth will take your information and we'll give you something something nice. Meantime, uh, let us uh, connect with a, a guy who is the hardest working man in all of broadcasting. Uh, he doesn't know what a vacation is. They give him special dictionaries that have the word vacation crossed out of it. Uh, vacation for him is doing five TV and radio shows instead of uh, instead of seven and walking three dogs instead of one. New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox and Friends and nationally syndicated radio talk show host Brian Kilmeade. Brian, good morning. Thanks Thanks so much for joining me, as always. Hey, Frank, you should know, man, you never stop working, nor do you sleep like me. So we, our lives will be short but fun. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, they will. All right, Brian, a lot of issues that I want to go over with you. You had a great interview with uh, Congressman Andy Biggs yesterday, all about these uh, new Joe Biden documents uh, that were found that were not properly handled. Here was uh, Congressman Biggs on Fox and Friends with you yesterday. Well, I'm, I'm as outraged as my colleagues are. I mean, you look at it and, and you say, when did they know about this? It turns out that we're finding out they knew about this in November. We're not finding out about it until January. Did they know about it prior to the election? Um, and, and is the president, does he feel that he was just as irresponsible as he claimed that President Trump was? I mean, this gets to the whole notion of what is going on with Joe Biden and the Biden White House. And, and this is another perfect example of perhaps two-tiered justice, where you send in dozens of uh, agents to raid Mar-a-Lago and go through the First Lady's uh, cupboards and her, and her dresser. But you got Joe Biden, that he's stashing stuff uh, that's right. equal. And that's a problem. That is a huge problem. Brian, how big of a deal do you think this is, not only for the Biden administration itself, but for the uh, legal investigation into the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents? I think it's huge. I don't think you can I don't think you can uh, understate, uh, overstate how big this is. I think in many ways it neutralizes the investigation. But the sad thing is. They found these documents November 2nd. They saw hypocrisy everywhere. They saw the standard, the double standard they'd be accused of having if they don't do the same thing with Biden. But on November 18th, he rolls out a special prosecutor to look at Trump. And then we have yesterday the second tranche be found, classified documents. We don't know where. We don't know why they're doing their spring cleaning in the dead of winter. Why suddenly they have to evacuate some these private offices of of uh, of, pre- of vi- then vice pre- former Vice President Biden and now President Biden, why do they have to go look into this now? Why do you send lawyers to clean out a closet and all of a sudden find these documents? Why did you report it to the AG and not tell the American public right before the election? Why did the AG not tell everybody? Why did CBS have to break the story the first time and NBC last night? Why was it that CBS was so aggressive yesterday for the first time with the press secretary who thought it was a great idea not to get briefed about anything important before she went out there, Mm. which is a colossal waste of time? I know there's supposedly a I know there's a special prosecutor and supposedly the investigation is in his hands at this point. But ultimately, everything is answerable to Merrick Garland. He's the head of the Justice Department. Doesn't this make it impossible for them to file any sort of criminal charges against Trump for this document situation? Wouldn't it just look like selective prosecution? 
Frank, I, I hear you. And the second, the second uh, group of documents, which we know so little about at this time, uh, let's say so far there's 10 that Joe Biden, they say that they were found in Joe Biden's locked closet. I doubt the closet was locked. I don't understand why it was okay for them to sit there for six years and they had to go out last year, uh, last month. Number two is how many classified documents are in the second tranche? Now, Trump had, uh, oh, they said over 100. I don't know. You know, I guess they say over 100. And um, and he did give up some of them. And then he was negotiating to give up the rest. And they said, we're just going to raid him. And they took it. So where was the Biden raid? Where was the, listen, we found some documents. And it's a little slow. You know, in November, we found 10 documents at the highest level of classification. And then we wanted to see, you know what? We don't trust that we're, that it's just that locked closet. Was it even locked? Who had access to it? What about China's 30 million that went into the Biden School of Public Policy? Why did that go? What did they get for that? And then you find out that they found a second group. Why is why are they allowed to investigate themselves? Why are the, why are the FBI not involved? And if the FBI doesn't want to do a sensational raid because he's a sitting president, they should be directly involved and saying, you need to point me to every one of his offices and his house, and we need to go through and find out where this stuff is and bring a National Archives person in with you. But this has to, Frank, this has to take the wind out of anybody's sails who thinks his former president should be prosecuted. Know what this means? Reform the process. National Archives, mm. the minute the election happens, the minute it's clear that the, uh, there's going to be a transition, the National Archives comes in with, with uh, Homeland Security, and they go over with weeks. they got a huge staff in the White House, uh, what goes and what stays. And then you have special permission with staffers to say, hey, listen, I'm writing my memoir. I need to take this. Uh, do you mind if I take that, uh, that famous photo with me? Can I get a copy? And that's it. This is, this is a total waste of America's time, but it's so important. But it just shows there's no system in place. And sadly, the presidents and their staffs can't be trusted. And I think there's probably an issue with maybe too many documents being marked classified. We may have a, an overclassification problem uh, to some extent. Hey, speaking of President Biden, yeah. he uh, made a trip to the border for the first time in quite a while. And uh, this is what he said as he visited the Mexican border. This has been the greatest migration in human history. We're trying to make it easier for people to get here, opening up the capacity to get here but not have them go through that god-awful process. The week before that, he also issued a warning to the world saying, don't come here, stay where you are, and go through the process properly. There seems to be a new emphasis, given the fact that there's now a Republican Congress and that the uh, a presidential election is slowly but surely creeping up on us. There seems to be a new emphasis in President Biden's mind on the border issue and border security. Where do you see this going in the coming weeks, months, and years? All right, I'm just, I know everybody listening to us it says Brian's the most naive person in the world. He's idealistic. But that bipartisan group of senators that went out after the election was done two days ago and came back and they seem to be saying the same things. I think there might be some serious people who just say this four million, four million in two years is such a breach and is such a concern. I have to put politics aside. And our doddering 80 year old president cannot be looked at to save the day. He is sold out to these left wing immigration groups. You saw it with that mild thing that he announced last week of five nations will have to apply from the nation that they're in and they have to get an app and download. They thought that was inhumane. 
So that's what the president, those are the people the president's listening to. He has to understand the cartels are going to start bleeding over our border. They're already taken over the border. We're going to watch the average person. People are going to see assassinations that are taking place in Mexico here uh, from the drugs to the people. Did you see the story in New York City at the hotel? I'm sure you've been talking about it, Frank. These these immigration hotels, this beautiful hotel called the NYC Row. uh, I know you know it. It's a famous hotel that's been converted for a migrant home. They're throwing out the free food we gave them. They're trashing their rooms. They're getting drunk, having sex in stairwells. That's the 30,000 people that are here in New York City illegally. That's how they thank us, who are desperate for a fresh start, who are oppressed in their nation. They come to the world's best city. They stay and eat for free. They toss the food, do drugs, and have sex in the halls. Have you ever seen such ungratefulness and we're being played like idiots? And now you're saying we have to have a heart because we want to have a country. We can have both. The other story, and as a Long Islander, I know this will resonate with you, that has gotten nationwide, really international attention, especially in the United States and Brazil, is this uh, situation involving George Santos. Yesterday, all of the Nassau County Republican leadership, pretty much, a lot of the Long Island Republican elected officials, including State Senator Jack Martins, came out and said they want nothing to do with George Santos. It is probably impossible for us to get someone who has no shame to do what is right. But here we stand united in sending a message that until he is removed by one way or another, we will move forward. We will continue to perform our services and our responsibilities as elected officials here in Nassau County. We will continue to represent the residents and citizens of Nassau County, and we will continue to do the people's work. But it will not include Santos. Speaker McCarthy says, look, he was elected and uh, we live in a country where you're innocent until you're proven guilty. You think this Santos story is going to dog him for the remainder of his term? Or do you think he's able to ride this out and uh, just kind of be a regular member of Congress? Uh, (laughs) We've never seen anything like this. No, it's very peculiar. embellishing resumes, but there's nothing about him that's true. But can I run as Superman? And, and I swear I fight crime at night. And if I get elected, and it turns out I am not Superman, and I can not stop bullets with my chest, and I can't pick up women on the street and fly with them in the sky, <laughs> uh, do I have to give up that seat? So nothing about him is true. That I give Republicans credit for making the statement, and I think McCarthy is right. you got to at least go through the process of the investigation. You can't let a reporter, as good as they, he or she may be, Decide a story, and and people in Nassau County, even from his own party, make statements like they did. Uh, so listen, I can't see George Santos lasting three more months. I can't, especially when his own party turns on him. But he has nowhere to go. He said, "I will not resign." Uh, the thing that's going to get him is jail, and that would be the campaign violations, mm-hmm. taking money uh, that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson donated to him, and paying his rent, and paying for vacations, and paying his sister's rent. Uh, so that uh, that type thing, I think the legal issue could force him to do something. What I love to see is see Lee Zeldin move to Nassau County and get pr- primed up to run a special election 
and get him back in Congress. Well, he doesn't even have to move. You know, you only can live anywhere in the state. He can uh, stay right where he is. Did uh, I know that in Suffolk County? You don't County. have to live where you're representing. Not for Congress. No, you can live uh, anywhere in uh, anywhere in the state of New York at the time of the election, and he wouldn't even he wouldn't even have to move. But I, I get the impression with Lee Zeldin that he's sort of over commuting to D.C. with having a family and everything. I think a perfect job for him would be something like Suffolk County Executive. Be a nice pay raise for him. You don't have to go to D.C. You get to hire a bunch of uh, a bunch of people, and you get to work with a, uh, a Republican legislature and actually get some stuff done. It's an open seat uh, this year, so uh, it's. I think that, that if I was giving him career advice, that's where I'd steer him. But uh, uh, people, I'm sure he's getting advice from smarter people than me. Hey, uh, Brian, you are a sports enthusiast. You're something of an expert when it comes to sports. We're heading into the football playoffs. Giants made the playoffs, but uh, most people don't have them um, making the Super Bowl this year. If you're picking, if you're handicapping the Super Bowl, uh, who do you think makes it? AFC, NFC, what does the Super Bowl matchup look like at this point? Well, I mean, it's hard to pick against the Bills. They're the hottest team in football. The emotions on their side. They have have become America's team. Uh, Growing up, I'm older than you, Frank. It was the Vikings were the team that got to the Super Bowl four times and couldn't win it. And then uh, high school, college, it was the Bills that got to the uh, Super Bowl four times and didn't win it. And the Broncos, for a while, got there three times and didn't win it. So when you go there and don't win, it becomes an albatross. And right now, the Bills might have the team to break that cycle. And everyone says the other team that could break it is Minnesota. I don't think so. I think it's going to be the Eagles. I think it's going to be, and I know Giant fans hate to hear this, but it's going to be the Eagles and it's going to be the Buffalo Bills uh, in the Super Bowl. And the Eagles don't, uh, you know, they got some injuries. Jalen Hurts came back. I thought the Giants looked great last week in a game they didn't have to win. But I, and with I no starters, the they didn't have any of their starters in that game yesterday, uh, last week. And at twenty-two sixteen, that's a that's a great. Re- I think that's an excellent result considering they put out their starters uh, in a game they had to win against the Eagles and lost. The Eagles had to win that game to get the number one seed, and they had to win. And I'll tell you what, they were in the fight of their life for a guy with his first career start. So I think the Giants are not afraid of the Vikings this weekend. You know, a 63-yard field goal or 62-yard field goal beat them by three. And when the Giants walked off the field saying, if that's the best team in the NFC, we're as good. And now they can't – if they had – you know, going in in the wild card, you're not going to be hosting most likely. So you know you're going away. They don't mind going to Minnesota. Controlled environment, weather not a factor. So look out, uh, look out for the Giants this week. I, I love what Ian O'Connor did in the New York Post, sat down with Bill Parcell, not sat down but called him, and said, what do you think? He's like, these guys remind me of my guys. Uh, Brian Dable is, is totally himself. The guys respond to him. And whatever you do, don't change what you're doing in the postseason. And I love this. He said, what Dable has done is the key. You act tough with them, and they take it because they know you care about them. If a coach knows you care, like a news director or an owner, he could be tough with you. Because if you think that they're in your best interest and you get berated by that boss or that coach, you'll go, that guy's right. Well, you know what? I know he, I know he has my best interest. Parcells knew how to do that. And, and this guy knows how to do it. I was at the game in Jacksonville, and he went up to Saquon Barkley and screamed at him twice in front of the entire bench for not running out of bounds at the end of that game. And I go, wait. That's, that's your most valuable player. Normally, people are afraid to yell at stars. They're going to call up their agents and want to get out next year. He's up for a contract. But Dable doesn't care. He's a little old school. And because he fundamentally has done something in that locker room you don't see anymore, he's won these multimillionaires over.
I mean, it's going to be a fascinating playoff picture to watch. I read an article yesterday that this uh, past NFL season, I, I know it's an extra week this year, this season, but this NFL season had more close games, games decided uh, by a narrow, narrow margin than any NFL season in history. So uh, hopefully wow. that's a, that bodes well for the playoffs as well. All right. Uh, radio, television and this weekend. What do you have in store for us, Brian? Okay, I, I sit down with Rob Schneider. Uh, I'm going to sit down with him on Saturday night, uh, you know, the SNL legend. Oh. Uh, I'm going to f- tell you the key to happiness. They did a, a 50-year study studying all these families about who, you know, and find out who became a success, who didn't, who got divorced. And fundamentally, they came up with, re- they came up with, so, uh, with conclusions on what makes people happy. I have the, the, the conductors of that study on the show. I also have uh, Carl Rove. Uh, so that'll be great. And we're going to look at Martin Luther King Day, uh, what he's meant, and debate it back and forth with two people who have different views of blacks in America today. So it's it's going to be I, – I cannot wait to get started with this show. By the way, if uh, people are interested in um, learning more about uh, – um, you know, Frederick Douglass, who I think uh, this coming weekend and going into Martin Luther King Day is as uh, relevant a historical black oh, figure as yeah. there is. They should absolutely check out your book, which I've read, The President and the Freedom Fighter, which deals extensively with the relationship that uh, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln had with one another. It's an absolute, uh, absolute must read. Brian, it's always a treat to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. Hey, hey, Frank, just real quick on our show coming up, uh, you'll be asleep. Uh, maybe catch the last hour. Mark Thiessen, Douglas Murray, Carl Rove, uh, Bill Hammer from Buddha Judge, the epic fail, uh, down to uh, what is happening with, uh, with uh, Joe Biden and these uh, secret documents is going to be a big show. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, check him out. Radio, television. Chances are, if you're awake, there's somewhere that he's on broadcasting. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Frank. Go Take get care. it, Frank. Uh, 15 seconds of fame coming up in a moment. Be heard on any subject. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Wall Street Denizens singing The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, before we do 15 Seconds of Fame, today is a uh, really interesting day uh, in that um, two of the greatest radio talents of all time, Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern, had their birthday today. Obviously, we lost Rush uh, last year. 
But, um, you know, Howard Stern is still uh, on the radio and doing really well. Also, um, my friend uh, Jimmy Otto, who used to be an elected official here in New York City. Currently, he's a key advisor to Mayor Eric Adams. It's his birthday today. And uh, Frank Fontano, who actually is he's another close friend of mine, but he ran against Jimmy Otto 20 years ago back in 2003. It's his birthday today as well. And uh, my Aunt Camille is celebrating her birthday today as well. I had uh, I had a lot of bumper music, uh, you know, planned for, for each of them, but uh, we weren't able to get the rights to it in time. So we'll play you that later in the week. And um, my, uh, you know, a, a couple that I married recently, Christina Tirolosi, She's celebrating her birthday uh, today as well. So it's an interesting an interesting day where that happens to have, be, have a lot of different birthdays. So happy birthday, Frank Fontano. Uh, oh, and it was Kirstie Alley's birthday uh, today as well. Obviously, we lost her. But happy birthday, Frank Fontano, Jimmy Otto, my Aunt Camille, Howard Stern, you name it. If it's your birthday today, congratulations. All right, without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Raise in the Bronx. Steve from Manhattan accidentally exposed himself. Everybody I know on the hard left is nocturnal, high energy. Go, Curtis. Go, Curtis. Go, Curtis. Go. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, rumor has it that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who is a former roller derby queen, is planning to, for, for the Treasury to print new $13 bills with the logo in Sam Bankman Freed We Trust. Mike is in New Jersey. Morning, morning, Frank. Um, another whale washed up on the Jersey Shore with a strong resemblance to an ex-governor with a strong disdain for an ex-president. Perhaps it was Shemu? Mike is in Lake George. Mike. I used to be in Lake George. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, hey, everybody, uh, all the good callers, a shout-out to Giuseppe from Lake Ronkonkoma. I hope the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl. Instacom is going to get you and take a hat off to number three. And let's go Mets. Joe is in Orange County. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, listen, did you hear about the new holidays now? They're going to switch Lincoln's birthday for Martin Luther King's Day. All state buildings, even unions. If they do that, Martin Luther King would have been a slave if there was no Abraham Lincoln. Come on. All right, well, I have to end that there, Joe. Um, Back tomorrow, you'll get to hear my exclusive interview with Steve Gutenberg. And ask Frank anything. So start coming up with some intelligent questions between now and then. Until then, Frank Moreno, good day.